everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide! Kaboom, there it is. Yep, that's what we do. Or whoop, there it is. Yep, that's our shtick. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani, I'm a critic, everybody calls me Bibbs. (laughs) My name is uh, Whitney Seibold, I'm the older guy who makes allusions to hip-hop hits of the 90s. Yeah, those are good hits. And uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we know we're late. It's been a weird week. It's a holiday week. We're going to cut ourselves a little slack. We've got so much on our plate. We're trying to bring you so many podcasts. Uh, but we've got uh, the new releases, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. That's one film. That's one film. <laughs> My Spy, House of Hummingbird, Yummy and Dummy. Yummy, Dummy. Two, uh, different, two different movies. And on our critically acclaimed streaming club, where we are using this opportunity while theaters are closed uh, to catch up on older movies that we haven't seen, we've got a Francois Truffaut classic that I don't think gets talked about enough. It's a film called Stolen Kisses, and it is a sequel to the film The 400 Blows, which is not only considered a stone-cold top 100 classic movies ever made, but it's also a film that gets a lot of credit for kicking off the French New Wave. It's one of maybe a dozen films that is credited for kicking off the French New Way. True, true. That's true. That's one of those things where it's like, it's nice to be able to point to one film and say, mm. that's it. But it's a whole bunch happened like simultaneously. Like a, a in fact, a bunch of different filmmakers came up like upon a very similar. We'll get to in it. In fact, there's but, actually uh, a joke in the 400 Blows, which we'll talk about when we review Stolen Kisses, uh, referring to a French New Way film that was supposed to be out by the time the 400 Blows came out and ended up not coming out until years later. <laughs> it's a weird yeah. gag. <laughs> I would never have known it when I first saw the film, and now I think it's hilarious. Yeah, all these, like, weird in-jokes. If you think, like, film fandom is insufferable now. Oh. France in the 60s, man. Godard and (laughs) Truffaut and their ilk were throwing in these references that are like, oh, you would have found them insufferable. Because they're all was, referring to each other's movies. Yeah, and, and to the it. movies and to the movies that they liked. Mm. You know, Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, they didn't invent that shit. They're just <laughs> that generation's version. Well, and uh, imagine like we're getting way into the weeds, but yeah. Well, but just imagine if, if like Tarantino and Kevin Smith they, they came up at the same time and like Spike Lee, this gen, that generation of filmmakers. Yeah. Spike if, Lee's a little bit before them, but yeah. Uh, yeah, like his he first broke like in the late eighties. Yeah. All, all like late eighties, early nineties, same boom. Uh imagine if Instead of like making allusions to the films they liked, they more often than not like Tarantino made a film all about allusions to Clerks, and then Clerks in in turn made a film that was all allusions to Reservoir Dogs or or that film that was an allusion to Clerks. Anyway, suffice it to say, the French New Wave is one of those things where it's interesting if you watch one movie. If you watch a bunch of them, it gets really cool. There's yeah. a ton of different <laughs> fun stuff to find. Um, before we get going on our new release reviews. We do have to talk about uh, a very sad thing that happened in the entertainment industry. There's sad things happening all the time. But the one in particular that we really wanted to highlight uh, is the passing of one of the great comedy legends uh, of the world, basically. Uh, Of the world of uh, across media, of TV and of film. Yep. Uh, Actor, director, writer... Carl Reiner has passed away at the age of 98, so no one can say he didn't have a good run. <laughs> and he was spry. In fact, he, was. Uh, he, he Still and. active on Twitter and yeah. funny. And... He and Mel Brooks wrote together back in the 50s, mm-hmm. uh, and they were friends their whole lives, uh, up to the point when they were. Mel Brooks is in his 90s. He's still king. He just celebrated, I think, his 94th birthday. Yep. Uh, I, think, I think so, yeah. Carl Reiner would go over to Mel Brooks' house and they would watch Jeopardy. 
Yeah. Like every week, every, I'm not sure if it was every day, every week, but frequently Mel Brooks would drive over to Carl Reiner's house. They'd watch Jeopardy up until the very end. Yeah. Like that, that was the nature of their friendship. I never, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm 38. I've never had a relationship of any kind that long. I haven't known my mom that long, you know, like that's insane. It's lasted 70 years. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, It's incredible. And uh, surely you've seen or listened to the 2000 year old man. Oh, long time. It was, it, yeah. it was a radio. It was a TV bit. It was a radio bit. It was an animated bit. Mm-hmm. They they did that bit over and over again. Yeah. And uh, Carl Reiner played an interviewer who was interviewing Mel Brooks, who was a man who was two thousand years old. And the joke was just about how long lived he was and the origin of all these things. And he's like, "Oh no, I can tell you the real origin of how yeah. these things got started." Um, it's like, how did how did marriage get started? Well, you know, we had to make sure somebody had watched you back. It's like, <laughs> so got to make sure. Like, how did the handshake get started? I have to check if they got a weapon. Okay, so oh, good, good, you got no weapon. Okay. And that's where marriage came from. You check if they got a weapon. No, check. Okay, stand against my back. Okay, that's it. I guess we're married. <laughs> and that's marriage. Um, mm. Carl Reiner's probably his, I think it's fair to say his biggest contributions to the world of entertainment were in television. Mm. Uh, he would work on some of the sketch comedy shows that basically all the sketch comedy shows you like, mm. like everything from like Monty Python to Kids in the Hall, Saturday Night Live, mm. it, all of that, they stem from the early, early, early days of television when shows like Your Show of Shows and uh, Sid Caesar's Hour uh, were kind of pioneering all that stuff. And they had these incredibly brilliant writers, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner among them, um, who were doing very, very funny things. A lot of these shows are still like available or clips are available online. And they've done these wonderful retrospectives, and I've seen several of them, where they would get... You know, Sid Caesar when he was alive and Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks and I get them all together to talk about like all the sketches that went wrong and got funnier as a result. <laughs> like there was one where I think it was uh, Sid Caesar was uh, like doing clown makeup and he was supposed to just do it and then go on with the scene. But then the makeup brush broke and he put a big line in his face. So the entire sketch was about him doing tic-tac-toe on his own cheek. <laughs> <laughs> they made it work. Um, and then Carl Reiner was responsible for putting together the Dick Van Dyke show, which is one of the more formative sitcoms in yeah, American history. Made a star out, out of both Dick Van Dyke and uh, Mary Tyler Moore, who got yeah. her own show in turn. Mm-hmm. Well, they uh, made themselves stars, but this, well, was, their, but this was their platform. It was their yeah. it was their big break, and yeah, yeah, having Carl Reiner involved certainly didn't hurt them. Not uh, at all. And then uh, when he, he started directing feature films as in the mid-60s and made some of the more acclaimed uh, comedies of the early 1980s. Uh, actually, through the 70s. In the late 70s, um, he had a couple of films. Uh, he did Oh God, which, yeah, with George Burns. Which is kind of blissfully sacrilegious, that movie. A lot of people don't talk it's, about it anymore. That's true. The, there were a several Oh God movies. Yep. There was Oh God, Oh God, Bakhtuda, and Oh God, You Devil. Yep, there were three movies mm-hmm. that starred George Burns as God. The first film starred John Denver, the John Denver, this the musician. Mm-hmm. He's actually an okay actor, and uh, he played a normal guy, and God started speaking to him. And God, it turns out, was A, George Burns, and B... Kind of a chill dude. Like, well, he, he was Carl Reiner is who he was. Oh, kind of, uh, yeah. George Burns in real life was kind of a cantankerous guy. Not, not in, an, in an evil sort of way, but he was yeah. kind of a grump. Yeah. Uh, whereas Carl Reiner, you talk to him in conversation, and he was sort of just a laid-back guy. Yeah. He was, as they say, a mensch. Um, I really, really liked... Uh, the Oh God movies growing up. I haven't revisited them in a while, but there was something about they them where... They were on TV a lot. They were on TV a lot. But there was something about them, like, when I was growing up, and I'm sure a lot of people, depending on, like, where you live, what community you live, where you've grown up, um, mm. your experience with organized religion will vary. 
But, you know, I had heard a lot of dogma, a lot of God says this, mm. and then to watch this movie in which God was just some guy, <laughs> and, like, he was smart, and he had good ideas, but he also, like, made mistakes. Like, there's one bit at the beginning where John Denver, like, questions whether God is really God because he has a business card with a typo, and God's just like, does anyone care? <laughs> the bit I always remember, and this wasn't a Carl Reiner movie, mm. um, he might have worked on the script, but he didn't direct it, uh, was Oh God, book two. Uh, in which God befriended a young girl and he was talking to her about all the things in the world that didn't make sense to her. Mm. And uh, she said, like, giraffes. And he's like, what, giraffes make perfect sense? You know, like, what are you talking about? Why are their necks so long? So they can eat the leaves in the tree. Mm. Why don't you just make the trees shorter? And God's like, why didn't I make the trees shorter? <laughs> it would have made so much sense. What was I thinking? <laughs> well, and, and I love that God starts admitting, like, the mistakes. Like, oh, God, all avocados were such a mistake math was, was way like, too complicated was like, yeah. <laughs> why are the pits so big in yeah. avocados like if you it's one of those movies that I think if you did it at any time I, if memory serves I think there was some backlash to mm -hmm. it but like it's, it's, it humanized a deity to me when I was young <laughs> and it actually probably perpetuated my belief in God longer than it would have yeah. otherwise um, he, then a couple of years later he made a film uh, called The Jerk which is one of the movies that Steve Martin was a big TV star before then but this is yeah. like his big movie breakout and the jerk is still mostly very funny. When you watch a lot of Carl Reiner movies, you're going to find the hit to miss ratio can be high, mm -hmm. but the hits are so high. <laughs> the bit where someone's trying to kill Steve Martin and they're shooting at him and Steve Martin... And, like, they, and they keep missing. And they, they keep missing and they're hitting cans at a gas station and Steve Martin starts yelling, get away from the cans! He hates the cans! <laughs> still funny. Still funny, damn. Or when he when his name is in the phone book and he says, "Do you have any idea how many people have this book?" This is when things are going to start happening. To uh, uh, yeah, he uh, and these were seen as like Steve Martin vehicles. He directed mm -hmm. these Steve Martin vehicles, but Carl Reiner had a very peculiar sense of humor at the mm -hmm. end of the day, and I think he and Steve Martin got along very well because Steve Martin also has a very peculiar sense of humor. They were weirdos. Like the yeah. jerk is a broad comedy and sort of the Dumb and Dumber vein. You kind of get away with a lot. Like, oh, he's dumb. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the whole movie. When you look at their other movies together, they're actually really ambitious comedies. Yeah. Uh, they, the next thing they did together was a film called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which was on top of being this very uh, spot-on satire of film noir, mm. in addition to just Steve Martin plays uh, uh, a private detective who gets hired by a femme fatale and goes and searches mm. for a missing guy or whatever, and it's funny... They actually edited in footage of old movie stars like, in film noirs, like people like Humphrey Bogart, and uh, they put them in the movie. Mostly shots of them on the phone, so they could edit between the movie star on the phone and Steve Martin on the other end. Right, which is A, a gag, B, pretty darn clever, and not the sort of thing that was being done a lot, and it's yeah. very, very much like... Um, the, the antecedent to something like Forrest Gump, where they would like really do that hardcore, make that the whole gag of the whole film, but... Mm. It's a really novel exercise. It's another movie where I think some of the jokes are... Eh, Carl Rayner came from an earlier era. Sometimes he'd make really sexist jokes or really mm. offensive jokes. But they're actually pretty small parts of the movie, as far as I can remember. He, he wasn't a hateful guy. He was mm. just telling the tasteless jokes that were acceptable at the time. For example, uh, in the next movie that they did together, The Man with Two Brains, mm. uh, which is a parody of the old, like, really crappy mad science movies of the 1950s, like The Brain That Wouldn't oh. Die... Well, that that and also the kind of less well remembered 
brave doctor melodramas. Oh yeah. That, yeah. that, were, that were on TV a lot at the time. That's true. Like, That's like, like General Hospital or yeah, Dr. Yeah. Kildare. And, mm. um, but uh, Steve Martin plays a brain surgeon mm. who falls in love with the woman he hits with his car. The woman is played by Kathleen Turner in only her second role. She went from Body Heat mm. to The Man with Two Brains. And she is two brains, so damn good in that movie. She's she's good in both movies. Yeah. What's funny is that The Man with Two Brains was an immediate commentary on her role in Body Heat. Because it's, she's sending up that whole gag. She, yeah, she plays a, a sort of a comedic... It turns out she's this comedic femme fatale who marries rich men and steals their money. Yeah. And, and she's really vicious about it, too. She's actually kind of a like a horrendous dickhead. Yeah. Uh, I love The Man With Two Brains. It was one of the... It's very dear to me personally. Mm. It was one I taped off of television and watched incessantly. Yeah. Back when taped off of television meant something. Uh, <laughs> it was the only way we could get movies sometimes. But yeah, in addition to uh, saving the life of this woman he hit with his car and he ends up marrying her and she starts going after his money. Meanwhile, he's fallen in love with a brain that he can communicate with psychically. A uh, disembodied brain in a jar. Yeah, voiced but by Sissy, Sissy Spacek. Spacek. <laughs> who is not credited in the movie. Uh, good for, like, uh, what? <laughs> weird, mm. no, it's a weird, 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 weird comedy. If you get the references, it's twice as funny. Mm. If you don't get the references, it's still really funny. Um, and then they did a movie that, which is basically when people think of Steve Martin, you tend to think of him as sort of a, a verbal wit. Mm. You know, he's a he's a clever writer. He's written novels. He's written his own screenplays. But all of me is Steve Martin as one of our great physical comedians because mm. in all of me, Steve Martin plays a guy who gets possessed by the ghost of Lily Tomlin, but she only but she- co- controls half his body. So it's like Let's she's on the left half and he's on the right or vice versa. And so he's, he has this really weird, uh, wa- he, like uh, affects a really good walk. Uh, yeah, his his left hand is really, he moves it in a different way. Uh, and then Lily Tomlin does voiceover providing, you know, sort of this inner monologue in his brain. And yeah, it's this weird high concept thing about how are we going to get her soul out of his body? Mm-hmm. It's it's very, very I guess it was sort of commonplace at the time, but it's really, really kind of weird when you think about it. Well, there were a lot of these like magical comedies of the '80s stuff, like Chances Are, mm. where uh, or, guy or, or, or Oh God or, or Oh God or, 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 or Eighteen again, another uh, George Burns movie. Or George, uh, or, yeah, 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 um, yeah. A lot of magical what, conceits, that, or, or vice versa, yeah. the one where uh, yeah, I mean, Fred I, Savage I that, and Judge Rhino had that mixed up in my head with vice versa. It yeah. came well, out there, but the there's time. the other, but then there's the Dudley Moore one where he switched places with Kirk Cameron. I think it was like the same movie. Oh, like Father Like Son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there were a Basically, lot of body swap movies. Oh, yeah. It was just these things happened. Uh-huh. Don't go into an antique store in the '80s was the lesson I learned. <laughs> and then there was the movies that I actually saw first more than mm. anything else. I saw Summer Rental with John Candy, where he like rents a house and it's funny it's basically mr hobbs takes a vacation with john candy but the one that i fell in love with as a kid was a movie called summer school <laughs> summer school is great summer school is really really funny some stuff in it hasn't aged well uh but uh, is it is it mark Harmon? dean cameron well dean cameron's in it but who plays the the teacher oh yeah uh, mark Harmon. Okay. mark Harmon. mark it's mark Harmon. mark Harmon. yeah the he, greatest actor of his generation mark Harmon. um <laughs> All, all I remember is his smarmy smile and his bad hair. Um, but he plays a gym no, teacher. No, no, no offense to him. He's actually uh, a fine I, performer. I don't know. Uh, Mark Harmon plays a gym teacher who is basically... Carl Reiner was supposed to teach like remedial English in summer school, but then at the beginning of the movie, he wins the lottery and he quits immediately. And now the vice principal is like running around trying to get like any teacher to agree to do summer school, but they're all leaving. And Mark Harmon just happens to be the last one to leave. So he's stuck teaching English. He doesn't know how to teach. 
there's actually a line where he goes to Kirstie Alley, who's also teaching summer school, and it's like, how do you teach? Because <laughs> he's never, he's, gym and English are different subjects, so. Yeah. And he's got an entire, yeah. like, cast full of misfits, and the best, of course, uh, is uh, Dean Cameron, and, um, oh, who's, who's the other guy? It's Chainsaw it's and not, Dave. It's not, not Andrew McCarthy. It's Dave Frazier. No, oh, it's, it's Dave like, yeah, it's to get, Chainsaw and Dave. Chainsaw and Dave. Were these two just slacker guys. guys. Yeah, they were slacker guys who were super into horror movies, and they would, like, do, like, presentations in class mm. where they would just show the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and talk about the makeup effects. Mm. Summer School's a dumb movie, but it's actually kind of cool in that it te- it actually explains how, like, there's actual practical applications for things that we're learning in school. Like one of their things that they learned was like, okay, you want to learn how to write. You don't see why writing is relevant. Write a company and complain about their product. If you write your letter well enough, they'll send you free stuff. <laughs> so they get a big box full of sunglasses. It's a delight. It's, it's, it's really, it, it, and it was another one that was on television a lot oh, when a we lot. were kids. Yeah. Um, and later, the, the, later on in his career, he did stuff that didn't really click, like well, Fatal Instinct, which was one of those I, spoof movies. That, I'm, I'm a fan of Fatal Instinct. I think it's, it's kind of, of it's, it's, I mean, it's just chaotic and energetic in the way that those movies ought to be. Uh, it, it didn't match sort of the the wildness of The Naked Gun, which was no. sort of the film that that pushed those movies back into the fore in, in like the late '80s and early '90s. Mm. But yeah, it was a spoof of like Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction, hence the title. Uh, and I think it has a really, really hilarious performance from Armando Sante in the lead role. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's just a lot of weird slapsticky stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course he was acting they, this whole time. Uh, yeah, indeed he was. Yeah. Was, uh, on TV and in films, uh, he would show up in his own movies occasionally. He was the, uh, cross-eyed film director in The Jerk. Oh yeah. The yeah. one who ended up bringing the Steve Martin character down. One of his last roles was a voice in Toy Story 4 where he played Carl Rhinoceros. Isn't that cute? Yes, it actually is. It's really cute. He he brought so much, um, I don't want to say dignity, just uh, so much professionalism mm. to the role. Like, we recently reviewed a show called uh, uh, King of, or King mm. of the Pride? Oh, uh, f- uh, Father Fa- of the Pride. Excuse me, Father of the Pride. Yeah. We saw a TV series called Father of the Pride. It was an animated series uh, about the animals that lived in the enclosure owned by Siegfried and Roy. Yeah, they had their who own... played themselves in the. Well, they didn't play themselves, but were stars of the show. And uh, they produced and, the show, and it was all made with their but, uh, with their uh, thing. But yeah, it's about the animals when, Siegfried and Roy used. When yeah. the animals are off on their own, they essentially live in a suburb and they live in a sitcom existence. And there's a family of bickering white lions uh, that are the stars of the show. Yeah, Carl Reiner was the the grandfather in that household. He never slept sleepwalked through that thing. Oh yeah, that's actually a better show than people gave it credit for. Yeah, he he was, legitimately al- good, he was good he was on always on. He had, he had a lot of good jokes. He sold every line of dialogue that he had. He knew what to do, even when he was playing a dumb talking lion. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite Carl Reiner moments from his later career. He appeared in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, he yeah, was Saul Bloom. Yeah, he Saul, and his role in the heist within Ocean's Eleven was he had to play this like Russian oligarch mm. who had to talk to Andy Garcia, the casino owner, to hide his money. And he said early in the movie, "It's like I'm not sure if I have another one of these in me." He's a little older. He's yeah. can't really do these high high stakes heists any longer. And there's a bit where he's getting ready and he's getting, you know, putting on his costume and getting into character. And he just sort of like leans over and he looks kind of defeated for a minute. He looks like he's having trouble with his health. And George Clooney says, are you feeling okay? And Carl Reiner in 
this wonderful acting moment stands up, looks him in the eye and says, don't you ever fucking ask that of me ever again. Yeah. Like he just bring, he, he comes a, right back at him and it's so totally convincing. That was a really late addition to the movie. In fact, I think that might've been a reshoot. Mm-hmm. I remember listening to the commentary track and they were talking about how they realized that there wasn't a scene that said just within the context of the scene. And now the heist is on. Like there wasn't like a transition from before the heist to the heist uh-huh. itself. And that was a scene they came up with was Carl Reiner putting aside all of his baggage and getting in the fucking game. Mm. And, and then he immediately turns around and starts doing the Russian accent in a mirror. Hello, yeah. I'm Vladimir or whatever his name was. Yeah. Ah, he was great. Uh, he was, yeah, just uh, proving that he is also a great actor yeah. on top of being a great comedian. If there's one Carl Reiner movie for mm. people who aren't familiar with his work that you would like suggest mm. people make a point of going to see uh, in light of this, uh, what was, would you? I mean, he was such a titan. It's so hard to say. Well, what's your favorite? Um, oh, the man with two brains is still okay. like personally, it's my favorite. Uh, just because it, it's so odd. It's extremely. <laughs> it's, odd. it's a really strange <laughs> movie, and yet it's still hilarious all the way through. You know, oh no, the sun baked the Z's out of your brain. <laughs> they took your Z well, they, cells. They, they, they killed your Z cells. Some of, there's actually like an additional joke about that. There's actually several jokes in Man with Two Brains that are only on like the TV cut, which which I grew up watching. Yeah. So it's kind of weird to finally watch the R-rated cut with all the nudity and cussing in it. Yeah. And also scenes missing. It I know, it's bizarre. super fucking bizarre. But, um, yeah, yeah, Man With Two Brains is definitely a classic. I would say probably all of me, I think, mm. is the one that you should probably make a point of. But, um, Carl Reiner, legend. Mm. Absolute legend will be missed. Oh, and you know what? He he directed Oh God. He played God. That's right, in History was, of the World, in History one. of the World, Part 1. Yeah, he was the voice yeah. of God. Moses, can you hear me? I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, so we should move on to our new uh, new releases. Yes, uh, and but, but rest in peace, Carl Reiner. Rest in peace, Carl Reiner. And I think again, we try to start with the biggest release mm. of the week. And based on the conversation that I've been hearing online, it gets hard to say like when everything's on streaming, what like is the number one movie of the weekend. Yeah, but I've heard more people talking about the new Will Ferrell movie than anything else. So let's start here. Uh, it's called Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga. And this is an interesting watch for me okay? because I'm not super familiar with Eurovision oh, and this movie okay. is packed full of cameos that I did not get. <laughs> From like, like Eurovision winners. I had I looked it up afterwards and everyone, apparently I should have been going, hey, or, ah, or, oh, that's a funny cameo. And to me, they were all just supporting actors. <laughs> and it was just, a, so this is not a movie that was made specifically for me. I'm coming at this from a bit from the outside. Well, here's the problem. I don't know who this is for, because if you are familiar with the Eurovision Song Contest, you probably uh, know that first of all, you know what it is. It's a Europe-wide song contest where uh, singers from all of the nations get together and each submit one song and they tend to be very broad theatrical pop songs. A lot of the Eurovision acts. It's not like uh, American Idol or, or where it's all, Brit- Britain's where it's Got all Talent, where things, yeah, yeah, it's like covers, or you kind of like have a, this wide variety of pop genres. These are all very broad, loud, a very certain kind of upbeat electronic pop. Because keep in mind, ABBA came out of the Eurovision song. Yeah, that's actually the clip that they mm-hmm. show us at the beginning for anyone who doesn't know what Eurovision is, like in their sort of prequel scenes, is they show like the young versions of Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell watching Eurovision when ABBA performed, and ABBA is of course. 
one of the great bands. I'm just going to say it. They're bright. Yeah, they're, they're, they tended to make a lot of happy songs. Musically, they're fucking amazing. <laughs> Look, I love ABBA. There's a reason why anytime you go singing karaoke, somebody's going to whip out Dancing Queen. Because Dancing Queen is that good. All of it's that good. Mm. I Normally, I would say, like, uh, you know, Greatest Hits Fernando, albums. Yeah. I, like, ah, uh, you're such a poser, Greatest Hits albums. I, I don't think that anymore. But <laughs> ABBA Gold... Holy shit. <laughs> there is not a yeah. dud on that thing. It's all five-star jams. Holy shit. There, there's a, a few Greatest Hits records where... We, we grew up in the era when if you buy a Greatest Hits record, you're a poser because you're not yeah. actually collecting the albums. You're just yeah. you're like cutting to the hits. It's So if you only owned a Greatest Hits album, it was seen as a little bit gauche. Yeah. Uh, but, but with notable exceptions. But the notable exceptions, Abigold and yeah. uh, the three volumes of Classic Queen. Uh, uh. Billy Joel's Greatest Hits, Volume 1 and 2. They're also, Those yeah, are the also, three. Also good. Those are the three. Mm. And the sum, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Greatest Hits. But that's <laughs> kind of on the other side of things. A lot of people don't even agree with that. But surely those three. But yeah. So once you have your head inside ABBA, you kind of know like the germ of the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah. And uh, Eurovision Song Contest, because it's European, it's not really well celebrated or widely known in the state other than the states. Other than like a cult phenomenon, yeah. I mean, like you can watch it, but you but people don't vote for it here, so they don't really have a stake in it. We don't send an American band to Eurovision, so it's not the same. It makes sense. Uh, I've seen a few Eurovision acts. I've seen a few really bizarre Eurovision acts. Mm-hmm. The weirdest one I saw was a band called Winnie Pooh, W I N N Y P U U H, and I think they were Icelandic. Okay, and they were uh, like a really hardcore death metal band. <laughs> And their act was they had a drummer that they strapped to the ceiling and like strapped him into his chair and he was drumming upside down. And the lead singer came out with his hair brushed entirely over his face, covering his entire face. Mm -hmm. And he began to sing and he squealed in the highest pitch squeak you could ever hope to hear in a death metal song. This sounds awesome. And that was the act. Well, you look made up, an impression. Look up, look up, Winnie Pooh. Not I'm, good music, but interesting. I'm very excited about and, it. And so. Yeah, the, and I, I feel like Eurovision has several acts like that, uh, just for novelty value mm-hmm. from time to time. This uh, movie about the Eurovision Song Contest is trying to capture that weirdness, mm-hmm. but because it's a Will Ferrell vehicle, sincerity is the enemy. I, I yes feel, and no I here. Like it's difficult it's weird for me because cause I feel like uh, Will Ferrell, his, his shtick is that he wants to be laughed at. He plays these broadly buffoonish characters that you're supposed mm-hmm. to like feel very, not badly for, just badly that they exist. Yeah, like Anchorman, it's mm. the whole thing is he's a dinosaur, he's a relic and, of an era where men could fail upwards and, yeah, and be that stupid exactly. and still succeed. And, and uh, a lot of his shtick is he's kind of clueless as to how ridiculous he looks. Yeah. And so he'll be in uh, films like Blades of Glory. It's like, oh, isn't it funny that this large kind of doughy guy is wearing a skater's outfit and he doesn't realize how ridiculous he looks. That's the comedy. That's the joke of a Will Ferrell movie. Basically. He's very very aware of his image, which is something Mm. that's actually hard for a lot of uh, entertainers to Mm. be. Well, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if that's his image. I think that's just his his Lotsey. That's his gag. Well, it is his gag. I actually mm. interviewed Will Ferrell a long, long, mm. long, long time ago for a movie he did called Everything Must Go. Yeah, um, the one, where, one of the ones where he actually acts. Probably his best performance. He's, he's yeah. a good actor when, he, when he's actually asked to act. Mm. And I had asked him um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because it's been a long time, but I asked him uh, kind of an old question, like something you just whip out when you're running out of time and you want to ask something, which was um, talking about dream projects. Is there any sort of dream comedic project you would like to do? And he actually had an interesting idea, which was he wanted to get a bunch of broad comedians to do Shakespeare, mm-hmm. but not make it funny. Yeah. And just because he was aware that people would see them as comedians and they would want to laugh. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't actually do anything funny, and I think this actually might have been the sort of the seed for that Lifetime original movie he did with Kristen Wiig. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, like a Deadly Adoption, mm-hmm. where it's just a Lifetime original movie. Starring you wa- comedians, you want to laugh because you think they're going to do something funny, but they never do. It's just a Although, straight up Lifetime movie. You'll notice though that uh, there's one little clue, and we t- we actually reviewed this on our Cancel Too Soon monthly movie a while back. Yeah. And there is one little key to let people in on a joke, as it were, in a deadly adoption, mm. and it's Will Ferrell's facial hair. They gave him this kind of really big, very feathered, uh, almost uh, James Brolin kind of hair and beard. Yeah. Which is clearly very dated. It doesn't match anything else in the movie. And Will Ferrell looks a little bit ridiculous in it. And I think he deliberately chose that as a little bit of a clue. Maybe. That he's taking the piss a little bit. In any case, he's very self-aware. And I think you're right. And I think most Will Ferrell movies, especially his broad comedies, the joke is, oh, it's Will Ferrell and he shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. However... Eurovision is a two-hander. It's not a Will Ferrell movie and it happens to star other people. It's very, very much uh, a duo film. It's a buddy film, a romance uh, with him and Rachel McAdams. And Rachel McAdams, who, let's just say it, is a comedic genius. She's one of the great comedians of her generation. Mm. And because pretty early in her career, she started like to do more like dramas and like action type yeah, stuff sometimes. Romantic leads, that sort of thing. I, I don't think she has been sort of... <sighs> painted with the comedian brush so that people just think of her as funny mm. um, which pro- is probably very liberating for her career and her probably her agents probably love that but every <laughs> time she's in a comedy whether it's Mean Girls or Game Night, Game Night or, so or Eurovision Night, or even yeah. The Hot Chick she's funny mm. she's crazy funny and Will Ferrell his, again the, the, the idea is they're in a small band in Iceland and their dream is to win on Eurovision and Will Ferrell has never been taken seriously by his father played by Pierce Brosnan okay um, and he wants he thinks if he wins Eurovision his father can maybe take him seriously his father has never said this it's just something Will Ferrell has got into his head Rachel McAdams has been in love with him since they were kids and, and, and there's some some ambiguity as to whether or not they're siblings. Because apparently his dad slept with everyone in their mm. small town, and so Will Ferrell is entirely and, convinced and, they're not siblings. And in fact, they even say that a couple times. We're we're we're, we're not brother and sister. Wait, we're we're not right. No, we're not brother and sister. <laughs> we're we're not. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so but so his whole his whole dream is to do it, and he writes their songs. But he's obviously he's Will Ferrell. He's not a musical genius. Rachel McAdams, whose voice they actually combined with, I think, an actual uh, uh, professional uh, pop singer. A professional pop singer. Mm -hmm. Um, She is incredibly talented. And as a result, her story is a little different because we're not laughing at her trying to be a good singer. We're seeing that her character, at the very least, is a good singer. And she actually does love a guy who is sort of so obsessed with his goals that he doesn't see that he's got, like... A relationship that anyone would die for right in front of him. And so her story is actually very easy to take seriously. And one of the things, and I was, Eurovision is one of those comedies where, <laughs> no, I had to think about this because mm. my opinion on this movie changed as I was watching it. 
Eurovision is one of those comedies where it's amiable, but I don't actually laugh that much. Like, I didn't actually oh. laugh out loud a lot. But what I found mm. is, because Rachel McAdams' story is pretty genuine, yeah, there's a lot of goofy characters around her, but she's mm. genuine. And because Will Ferrell's story is very much about breaking out of his self-absorbed bullshit and realizing how important she is... Mm. The movie actually eventually got my rooting interest. The problem is it makes you wait a long time. This movie is over two hours long. Not a lot uh, over two hours long, to be fair. You make it sound like it's three. It's like 2.05. It needs to be 80 fair minutes. Uh, it, it's... Uh, I, I remember when... Uh, Anchorman came out on home video they released a sequel along with it in the same box yeah. and it turns out the sequel wasn't really a sequel it was just a lot of deleted scenes edited together well and there was, they, there, there was like a giant there was like this subplot whole, this whole that subplot that the they cut out so they ended up just sort of editing all of that together some footage of the original film and they released it as kind of this unofficial sequel yeah. called Wake Up Ron Burgundy and uh, I can see that if you wanted if you put all of those things in the movie first of all it would have been over two hours yep. and it would have been death yeah to the pacing and to the humor. Frankly, that subplot, there's mm. like one really like super funny scene in that. Mm. The subplot doesn't work. It has uh, nothing uh, to do with anything. It doesn't really affect the characters. It's it, it, it's feel, a good DVD special feature. I feel, the, I feel like Eurovision is both versions edited together just right out of the gate. They didn't bother to edit it down to a film yeah. and have this other thing on the side that they could release as a DVD special feature. They the, just put it all in the movie, yeah. which means it's over two hours long, which means... There's a huge build-up to the semi-final, and then there's an equally huge build-up to the final. It's like one or the other, guys. We don't need well, to go through that cycle more than once. All of the gags can be compacted I, a little bit. I, I actually disagree with that. And it's actually... Uh, no, because it's a weird thing, because the formula of the underdog competition story demands that you either break certain rules or that you stick to them. And so mm. they had a, only had a couple of options here. Um First off, just to more to your point, the way the places where I see what you're talking about, where it's like clearly there's too many movies in here, is there's a subplot where Demi Lovato gets like blown up in a boat, yeah, and like she comes back as a ghost, and even the movie acknowledges that that subplot was pointless. Like the, well, and, at the end, the, the movie just goes. This she, whole thing went nowhere, did it? Yeah, and, and she loses sight of what her function was in the movie at yeah. one point. It's like beware, beware, this evil thing's gonna happen. Yeah, that happened like four scenes ago. Oh, oh well, okay. Well, bye. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's kind it's, of funny, but it's also completely cuttable. Like, mm. you really don't need that bit at all. Mm. There is, however, a couple of very funny scenes with elves. Well, uh, in, in Iceland, and evidently this is a thing, uh, there's a, a high contingent of people who do believe in elves yep. as entities that interfere in your lives. Yeah. Folklore. Uh, yeah. And uh, Rachel McAdams is one of those people. And there is a little elf village in their small town. Mm-hmm. And she goes and talks to the elves through little closed doors and leaves them offerings and asks for help. And there's the the gag in terms of how they're actually able to get into Eurovision when they completely bomb their audition and their their whole show uh, is every other contestant dies horribly. <laughs> That's the gag. And was when they see that they all died horribly, her first response is, oh, the elves went too far! <laughs> and that's one of like the three funniest gags yeah. in the home. It was so damn good. So that's that's all very, very, very funny. But what you got here, though, is Eurovision is a competition and it's like a tournament. It's like mm. a fighting tournament. You can't they can't play in the finals unless they get there. I, and I so in order to yeah. get there, they're actually and they even skip because they skip to the semifinals 
How did they get out of the semifinals? We never see that performance. They're not that good. I mean, they get well, I, good, but they're not that good. Well, and here's my issue is uh, they one of their main uh, rivals is Dan Stevens. He's the Russian singer. And mm-hmm. uh, and the joke is he's gay, but he won't say he's gay. Because uh, he's Russian and it's illegal. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. And and they just and it's just played for laughs. There's no commentary there. I thought that a little bit yeah. at the end. They talk about it right at the end. Very, where they're talking about briefly, how he, like, he's thinking about moving to Greece where he can be himself. So I, mm, oh, they, oh. they're not completely ignoring it. But uh, the thing with Eurovision is you don't need to gussy it up. You mm. can just have straight competition mm. uh, and and it would still feel really silly but it would still be a good display of talent you get yeah. some real musicians have them do a Eurovision like act get some real Eurovision competitors well, get some re- there's a so oh, what you're saying is instead of seeing this movie you should just watch Eurovision oh, I, I mean you're getting I don't see why we need to watch this Americanized boulderized Will Ferrell version where he's clearly kind of poking fun at the weirdness when you can just get the genuine article, which is so much more exhilarating. See, here's the thing. I don't think mm. he's... And again, this is coming from someone who doesn't really know Eurovision. All right. But I didn't pick up... like This is like when you're introduced to something through a movie. Mm. The attitude that the movie has towards that thing can rub off on you. Mm. So if a movie introduces you to a social issue that you were not aware of, you then the movie does its job, your sympathies will lie where the movie wants them to, and you might start feeling a certain way about that social issue mm. or about a sport. Like, for example, uh, one of my favorite movies of last year was a movie called Fighting With My Family, mm. which is a really wonderful sports movie about wrestling, uh, a, a pastime that I knew very little about. Mm. I'd watched a little, but I didn't really know... I didn't really understand why people got really passionate about it. And at the end of the movie, I did. And I'm not saying I'm watching wrestling right now, but I have an appreciation for it I didn't have before mm. because this movie got me there. Watching Eurovision, the movie, I didn't feel any negativity towards Eurovision. I don't feel mm. like they were making fun of Eurovision. I think they were saying Eurovi- Eurovision is silly and we love it. Okay. That's the vibe I got. I, I didn't get any any actual affection for mm. Eurovision from someone like Will Ferrell. There's a scene, well, uh, Will Ferrell isn't, necessarily the voice of the film. Uh, no, though. but uh, he's one of those he's one of those uh, comedians who is kind of the auteur of his pictures. You could say the same thing about Adam Sandler. He doesn't direct those films, but those are Adam Sandler movies. Uh, he, he also, he also there, writes yeah. a lot of them. But uh, I, I'm th- I was watching Eurovision and thinking of the Pitch Perfect movies. Mm. How these college acapella things were really kind of bizarre they were an odd hobby for college kids to have but they got really really passionate about it and they're fun because the performances are really really good yeah and the characters well the characters are really interesting but i think it's really important to show that there's a reason why these kids were really really excited about singing college acapella it's not just because it's a silly thing to be into it's because it takes a lot of talent and it's actually really exciting to watch and they get to do a sing-offs in like empty pools where they choose mm-hmm. you know songs on the random and have to sing and arrange acapella numbers all, all at once and it's like a street fight there's a lot of exciting things going on in the world of college acapella and it made it seem if not broad uh kind of alluring yeah i feel like eurovision doesn't do that i f- feel like we're being kept at arm's length with eurovision mm. where we're not getting long extended uh sequences of things that are really kind of genuinely believable European pop hits. Mm. At least not when Will Ferrell's on camera. Because we have Rachel McAdams, she she sings, and they're mixing her voice to make her sound like a genuine pop star. These sound like real songs. And then Will Ferrell will show up and break that illusion. Yeah. 
He'll, well, because they're underdogs, say, have to be kind of bad at it. But the thing is, the joke is well, he's ruining it. He's, his, he's, his whole yeah. thing is not Eurovision. His whole, I mean, it is, but like mm. his whole thing is not Eurovision at its peak. Mm. He's holding it back because he's just trying to make I'm, it about. But him. he's he's not genuine bad Eurovision. He's just uh, silly American making fun of how silly this stuff is. Yeah. And uh, and, and it, which is kind of ironic because one of the running gags is there's a group of Americans that show up at one point in the movie and all he says is, I hate Americans. I hate you Americans. Go back to America, stupid Americans. Yeah. Well, he makes some salient points, actually. And there's actually... Of course he makes salient points. <laughs> we're, we're horrendously ignorant people who travel poorly. There's actually one one of the other funny gags in the movie is when Will Ferrell is like, why don't you go find a Starbucks? And he's, they're just like, oh, is there a Starbucks near here? Yeah, just follow the smell of pumpkin spice. Great, thank you. No, you're not supposed to enjoy that. <laughs> I'm making fun of you. And... Uh, and again, they shot in Iceland, and I don't know what they're trying, if they're trying to make some sort of weird comment about Icelandic culture here. Mm. If they're, I'm not sure if enough, an Icelandic person watching this movie would feel seen and honored by a Will Ferrell comedy, uh-huh. or a little bit off-put by the fact that he's clearly not getting a lot of this stuff right. Oh, well, I'm, I, that's actually But he is getting all, be... some of it stuff right, because they're shooting locally, and they're casting local actors. And it's called Eurovision, so clearly they had the support of the actual thing, otherwise they would have had to call it something else, yeah. you know? Like, that's just... World Vision. Something like which that. Which is what and they called it in, in the Apple. There you go. But, uh, yeah, I actually would be very curious if anyone uh, listening to the show... It's from we, Iceland. If we have any Icelandic listeners, yeah, I would be, or or just even just people who's like who, your parents hang from there, hail from there, or whatever. Or, um, or if you're just deeper into Eurovision than we yeah. are, because I'm only passingly familiar. Yeah, again, we, again, he's only passingly familiar. I know next to nothing about it other than that it exists. I've never seen any Eurovision except for a couple of clips here or there, and even then, not much. Mm. So I fully acknowledge that I'm coming at this from an outsider's perspective. If you have an insider's perspective about Eurovision, but especially. About Iceland, I'm very, very curious if you feel that this movie is like poking gentle fun and is a good is a good natured, or if you feel like they're using Iceland as a as a sort of a butt of jokes, which I could totally see. Or if they're just using it incidentally and they're not bothering to get anything right about Iceland or Icelandic culture. I would be very, very curious because I think that's a perspective that we shouldn't ignore. Mm. Um, it's easy because, well, you know. America's a big country. You don't necessarily know anyone with Icelandic origins, but well, and I would be very curious to know. It's also falling into that old trope of Americans kind of just not knowing about the world. Yeah. We're very bad at geography, and uh, there's... Bad at social studies, <laughs> but geography per se. Yeah, social like, studies, geography. It doesn't anything. so much matter that you can like point out a country on a map if you know about the country and its culture. There you know. I think but it's a bit more important, but... But also geography. <laughs> just, I don't think geography. I don't think. I don't think if you can point out where but, Iceland yeah, is on a map, you necessarily know about Iceland. No, we, we, li- we live in a country where, uh, in thrillers on the regular, they make up countries, and Americans just say, "Oh yeah, okay, there's probably a country like that somewhere." Yeah. I, I don't know countries. <laughs> So, you know, Americans know that there is a country called Iceland. They don't probably couldn't locate it or know anything about it. Maybe you might know that Björk comes from there, but that's it. Yeah. Um, well, and we should move on. Uh, last thoughts on Eurovision before we do. Because uh, we've talked about everything. Uh, just Will Ferrell rubs me the wrong way. So I'm, I'm yeah. not, not on board with this. And every time the camera was off him and on either Dan Stevens or Rachel McAdams, I was okay. I, I actually do agree he's kind of the weak link in this movie. However, I the movie grew on me over time. I don't love it. Okay. But the movie did grow on me over time, nice. and I do have to acknowledge oh, and, and he's also too old to play the part he's playing. He's, 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 supposed, he's supposed to be about the same age as Rachel McAdams, and she 
she's like, I think, 12 years younger well, than him or and something. Also that, and it shows. That type of role of the man child who's still living at home, that should be a guy who's like 35. Yeah. Not a, not a guy Will Ferrell say. It, it, it gets to the point where when Pierce Brosnan is saying, like, you should move out of the house, and you're just like, you should. Well, no. I'm not, I'm not like defending you anymore. Like at this point, like, yeah, you should, you should get your shit together a little well, if, bit. If you like, make it to 50, you just live there now. Yeah. Well, I'm, not, I'm actually not saying that. And again, if anyone is in that situation, I'm not judging you. But like, if you have the opportunity, I highly recommend, you, you know, but, uh, live on your own. It's a great experience. But Eurovision was directed by a uh, Hollywood comedy for hire director. There are a lot of them getting a lot of work throughout Hollywood. The big release of the week was supposed to be. <laughs> My Spy, yeah, which actually was given a theatrical release. It was pushed back, and it was finally released on uh, streaming this week. Well, it was. It was supposed to be given a theatrical release. It was supposed to come out in March. Mm. Then, when the pandemic started to hit, they pushed it back to April to be on the safe side. And then they pushed it back to who the hell knows, and then Amazon picked it up. Yeah. Uh, so this is a new yeah, comedy uh, starring Dave Bautista. Uh, who is, of course, a wrestler turned actor. People know him certainly best from the Guardians of the Galaxy movie where he plays Drax the Destroyer. Um, but he's actually been in a lot of stuff. He was in Blade Runner 2049. He's been trying to stretch mm-hmm. his acting muscles a bit. And here he's doing the kid movie he's that action a... stars have to do once in a while. There's the burly babysitter genre mm-hmm. where Vin Diesel's done one of these. Schwarzenegger's done a couple of these. Jackie Chan's Jackie done, Chan's one, Chan's of done one of these. Uh, Hulk either. Hogan's done one of these. The Barbarian Brothers have done it. Uh, it's... I don't think Steven Seagal ever did one and I don't think Jean-Claude Van Damme ever did one. No. I think they're, they're they, they were too dignified. <laughs> did Stallone is... do one of these? Oh god! Well, he did stop where my mom will shoot, which is similar. Yeah, that's like the mom sitter. Yeah. Like, okay, it's 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 an adjunct. He didn't completely mm. avoid the genre, but it's yeah, he didn't quite yeah. get that. Uh, th- this is from the director of films like The Nutty Professor Two and My Fellow Americans and Get Smart and Grudge Match. That All is perfectly adequately filmed movies. Yeah. So th- this his name is Peter Seagal, and uh, he's. I think he did one movie I really liked. He did yeah. Tommy Boy, which, yeah, I, remember, yeah, that's which, a funny which movie. I remember liking when I saw it in 1995. A, a, lot of it, it since. a lot of it's just based off of the chemistry of the cast because it's a really good mm-hmm. cast. You got Chris Farley, David Spade, mm-hmm. uh, Brian Dennehy, Dennehy yeah. Rob Below. Like, there's actually, like, everyone's, like, really good in it. Mm-hmm. So it just elevates the material. But yeah, My Spy is really really like in 1988 this would have been lambasted as predictable and this it's is, 2020 yeah, we're still is, doing the same friggin gags uh, absolutely desperate to do mm. nothing interesting with this material yeah. uh the the story such as it is uh dave batista plays a cia guy who has to start spying on a woman who has links to the mob uh her precocious young daughter who's about nine finds uh he and his uh computer jockey uh, co-worker Kristen Schaal mm-hmm. uh, in an ad- adjacent apartment and she ends up saying now you have to be my friend more or less and yeah, so if they you start don't, doing yeah if you don't be my friend I'll mm-hmm. tell everyone that you let a kid blow your cover mm-hmm. and so now Dave Batista becomes her surrogate father after her father died a year she, ago uh, she doesn't have any kind of uh, sparkle that I think a, a kid role like this would require. Oh, I think she's fine. The movie she's is definitely fine. not She's fine, fault. but uh, what we really need is actually somebody who has enough sparkle to mm-hmm. elevate the burly babysitter next to her, or we need a burly babysitter like Dwayne Johnson, mm. who actually has so much damn charm you don't care. Yeah, I've seen him do yeah. the burly babysitter thing. It's actually not great. It's, the it's ga- a- game plan is fine. <laughs> Tooth Fairy is actually pretty funny. 
Okay, see, I'll, actually, but, I'll actually go to bat for Tooth Fairy. It's not good, but it's funnier than you might think. D- yeah, Dwayne Johnson is one of those really rare movie stars where you continue to love him no matter how many pieces of crap he makes. Yeah, I actually did an article where I ranked every single... I've seen every movie Dwayne Johnson has ever mm. made. Mm. And let me tell you something. They're mostly not good. The highlights are great. And for most of them, he's the best part of the movie. Uh-huh. But yeah, he's made a bunch of junk. And Dave Bautista is just one of those guys who's going to make a lot of different different movies in his career. And the thing is, is he's one of those actors who, look, I, I've, I interviewed Dave Bautista once. He's big. He fills a room. Mm. He's very, very nice, or at least he was to me. But he's just, you got to either cast him in something that makes total sense that he would play that role, like look, a soldier. Or, look at that guy. He's a mountain. Yeah, like, uh, or or you need to tailor the role mm. to him and explain why he is so muscly because he kind of sticks out. So here he plays, and he's even sticking out in the CIA. He's supposed to be a spy, but he comes from like the Army Rangers, and he's actually just more of like a brute force kind of dude, and he's not good at things like pretending to be other people. Staying undercover. Or, or hiding from, or like hiding from people, or following people, or things. You know, the things that make you a spy and not just an assassin. So, you would think that would like be important later it just it's not it's just an excuse for why she's able to get the upper hand on him because when they put cameras in their apartment he puts a camera in like the dog chew toy what do you think they're gonna do the dog's gonna chew that up it's gonna get knocked <laughs> into under the couch what good is that gonna do so that's where she finds it and yeah he is a he's playing a guy who's not like doesn't have like high emotional intelligence that's something they talk about in it and he doesn't get to display it very much over the course of the film. Well, he's a likable actor, but he doesn't get a fun character to play. I, I, I think he's likable, but yeah, he's he's not a he's not a charmer. You know, he plays yeah. Drax the Destroyer, and we like him because he's kind of a dunderhead. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, here he's just a big brick of meat. Yeah. Who who isn't bringing a lot of personality to the role. So all of the things that we learn about him, he's told by other characters notice. Well, the Not, none of that's really communicated through Dave Batista's performance. Every once in a while, he'll like whip out like a totally inappropriate anecdote, like in front of like a classroom or something. And yeah. it's supposed to be funny when in actuality it's just horrifying. This is uh, one I'm, of those kids movies that completely celebrates the man in a way mm. that is actually really insidious and unhealthy. Where like, it's fun that he kills for the government and says, it's fine because they're all bad and no one has any follow-up questions to actually confirm if that's true if that is even possible remember and so when, remember, remember when that was a joke in true lies yeah have you ever killed anybody yes but they were all bad yeah that, that was that was a joke we're supposed to laughing at laugh at how horrible that is yeah here's in 1994 here he's just <laughs> justifying all this violence and he's a violent man and listen i'm not gonna go down this long alleyway where we talk about the insidious nature of films like My Spy and how they sort of make violent people and violent government organizations and government organizations that should be at the very least questioned and criticized and make them family friendly. There's a lot of conversation to be had there and you will think about it in My Spy if you're not 12. But here's the conversation I do want to have because this is a trope of the genre Mm. and this goes to stuff like Kindergarten Cop Mm. uh, where... What we're going to do is we're going to take an ultra-masculine man, and the comedy comes from him being emasculated by doing domestic or feminine things. You know, and that's the part of the toxic masculinity I don't like. You know, it's interesting because this there are certain burly babysitter movies where that's definitely a thing, like the, mm. uh, when Hulk Hogan, Hogan puts on a tutu, yeah, or, yeah. or when Dwayne Johnson puts on a tutu, mm. like that was a thing. 
Um, here, it's not so much that he is doing feminine things or domestic. Well, he's, uh, he's being he's being kind of like a dad or a friend. He's being like a dad, but mm. that's the thing is I actually don't think he's even really confronting anything different. He's not really mm. being challenged here. He's just being forced to go out and ice skate. I'm actually more concerned with the idea that, you know, like it's not so much that he's being domesticated as it is he is bringing the world of violence to a domestic mm. place. And the little the, the girl at the center of the film she wants him to teach her things like how to crack someone in a lie detector test or how to walk away from an explosion. And, you know, that's not necessarily a healthy thing. I understand that yeah. we're in a movie that, like, is making fun of action movies, but the, the, the line gets crossed a couple of times. Really early on in this movie, there's a scene where Dave Bautista's boss, played by Ken Jong, who's actually, like, not really hamming it up for a change. He's actually, actually just, like... playing a role for yeah, once. He's yeah, he's got a couple of funny lines, but he's he's tends to be cast for, like, kind of over-the-top characters. He's just the boss here. Dave Bautista comes in and says, well, I think that went well after a mission in which he killed a bunch of guys. And Ken Jong plays him a bunch of security cam footage, which, of course, is not... Act like, it's in slow-mo. It doesn't make any sense, but... And he shows <laughs> and him... And they change angles. And, and they show him, like, all, all these explosions and things, and there's a shot, and they linger on it enough that you can really get a good look. There's a severed head mm. in this kid's yeah. movie. How did this get a PG... I mean, I'm not trying to complain. I would just like to hear the MPAA's example of, like, look, we know that there's a severed bloody head in the first 30 minutes of this kid's movie, but we figured... Well, Whatever. There's, there's a really careful balance. If you're going to have uh, you know, uh, something with kids and extreme violence, that's, I mean, of course it's doable. Any story's doable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can either play the violence up really, really heavily and mm -hmm. have him, like, actually, like, severing hands and hiding corpses in the apartment, and that's the common... Oh, no, the, the closet's falling open because there's a corpse falling out. I can't let the kids see. And that's really dark, and that's mm -hmm. a good humor that can be mined from that darkness. Uh, or you do it completely family friendly where like he hits people with salamis and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and this one is more in the salami school, but, but every once in a every while, once in a a while but yeah. the, the, the severed head made me think, Oh, is this going to be like interesting, fun, dark humor? No, it's just going to be really toothless, bland, family friendly, friendly kind of movie. That is not teaching us anything new or exciting or different. It's not even really teaching and, us anything old that needs to be reasserted. Yeah. It'd be one thing, like, listen, there's a ton of family movies that are about the same stories over and over again. And personally, as a film critic, I tend to give bonus points if you're trying to, like, convey a different kind of message. Even, but, even if it's not as successful a movie. But, yeah. but, to be fair, we do need to remind people, especially young people, about things like why it's important to be open-minded and why it's important to, you know, not let people, like, put you down and, like, you know, you should be able to pursue your dreams and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Mm. That's really generic. But we shouldn't forget that. So I, it'd be one thing if this movie was just sort of, you know, hey, we all learned a viable lesson and it's mm. kind of harmless. I just don't feel like this was... I don't think this was harmful per se, but I just feel like it was sort of not really thinking about yeah. why it existed. I think it just well, existed because Dave Batista wanted to sort of soften his image a little yeah, bit. I think the, that's the only thing it tries to do. I've, I've been looking at the arc of Dave Batista. He's played a wrestler. He played uh, like a, a bruiser in an action movie, mm -hmm. uh, which was a big hit. He uh, played. He did sort of like a soulful role mm -hmm. in a small part in uh, Blade Runner. Yep. Uh, now he's done the Burley babysitter role. Mm. Next up, an animal in shades on the poster. That's all we got. He's got a chase. He's gonna chase <laughs> some animal that's 
he, he's stolen the money and he's yeah. not giving it back. Like he's got a kangaroo jack in his future. If Dave, just you wait. if Dave Batista's agents are listening, just avoid that don't, script and he'll be do, fine. Don't do the one where he chases. This has got to be where he bottoms out. He's got to like go get back better, <laughs> get some better material after this. Because I get it. Like these kinds of like family friendly kind of adventure movies are the sort of movies that are seen as sort of like a. Like, oh, parents yeah. can enjoy the action the silliness. They can, they can and, just print money. Yeah, and like, kids are going to see it. It's seen as four quadrant. It's got a romance and it's got kid friendly mm. stuff and it's got action stuff. Surely everyone's going to want to see it. And in actuality, I think no one wants to see it. Mm. Now, I think there aren't a lot of these movies that are huge hits. How much money did The Pacifier make? I rest my case. It probably, probably turned a profit, though. I'm not sure it turned a profit, but was it a hit? Uh, I'd have to look that up. I'm actually uh, going to look that up. But uh, I remember there was a, a streak uh, in like 2011, around there. Maybe it was a little later, where there were a lot of these really kind of insufferable looking mainstream, broad, brightly lit Hollywood comedies coming out. And a lot of them in a row seemed to be pretty good. That was the streak where we had stuff like Bad Moms mm. and Central Intelligence. That was a and, good one. And, uh, and Storks. There were a couple movies where they just looked insufferable. They looked like, and they came out of the Hollywood cookie cutter machine. Mm. And yet they were able to grab onto an actual issue or a little bit of extra charm or a little bit of raunchiness that pushed them up mm. the ladder bit. Th these are not, not four star movies, but they're three and a half star movies when usually these are one and a half star movies. Yeah. They're a, they're a four star, three star movie. There you go. Yeah. My spy is a one and a half star movie. This okay. is not exciting or interesting. And I actually have to retract my statement. The pacifier printed money. The pacifier yeah, cost fifty six million dollars, which is expensive for a comedy, oh. but it made nearly two hundred. So that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, that's pretty good. These, you these know, kind, these I, kinds of movies make money. I apologize. Clearly, I don't know what I'm no. talking about. No. I don't really have my finger on the pulse of of this genre. So fair enough. Mm. Uh, we should move on. Yeah. Uh, now, the damnedest thing is, uh, I actually didn't see any of the other new releases this oh, week. Okay. Uh, I'm actually trying to prep for this coming week. It's mm. a lot going on. Uh, so we're leaving this all up to Whitney, and I want to talk about a movie that Whitney has been raving about mm. all week. It's called House of Hummingbird. House of Hummingbird is the best film of 2020. So far. So far. Okay. Uh, it's uh, and and it takes a lot to unseat first cow and and Emma <laughs> in my in my heart. But uh, House of Hummingbird is a Korean film, and uh, like, like so many of my favorite movies, is a teenage girl coming of age story. Okay, it takes place in Korea in 1994, and that's not significant to Americans. But there was that was the year. Um, the president, the president of Korea, South Korea, died, mm -hmm. and there was also a really horrendous bridge collapse, which I needed to look up because I, I remember when it happened in '94. Mm. But it's not brought up a lot, but yeah, there's this really horrendous yeah. bridge collapse, and that event kind of is the centerpiece of uh, mm -hmm. the lead girl's life. Um, the lead character, she let me look up the the name of the uh, she's named Yun Hee, and the actress is uh, Park Ji Hoo. Uh, Park Ji Hoo plays a teenage girl, and her life is pretty miserable. She is constantly under pressure from her family to get into university, which means she has to keep her grades up at all costs. Mm -hmm. And also, her classes keep on, at, like in, in a scene early in the movie, her teacher says, we have to make sure everybody's in, on their best behavior. So if you want to rat anybody out, write their name on a piece of paper and hand it in. And she's ratted out. Ugh. It's like, that's that's a horrible exercise. It's terrible. And she's a little bit weird. She likes to draw. She's not so interested in classes. But this 
has her pegged from the very first scene as a problem kid and nobody listens to her and nobody takes her seriously. And when she comes home, she's berated by her parents and she is physically beaten by her older brother. Oh my God. She lives a miserable life. And she, she, uh, some of her quote friends, like the kids she's not really friendly with, but that she spends time with just because she needs some peers mm-hmm. try to foist another girl on her. And they don't really have that easier relationship, but because they're both really awkward, they begin to bond in this re- weird way. The only person who really sees her is her calligraphy teacher that she takes it takes as an elective after school. And she's the one who, in small ways encourages her to be herself and explain to her that there is poetry in the world. And they start saying things like, when, when will my life illuminate? When will this, when will I see the other side of this? There is something heartbreakingly genuine about that particular facet of the adolescent experience Mm. about being pegged a problem child yeah not that kind of angsty teen outsider feel that you see in all teen dramas something that's really makes you feel separate from the adult world yeah and not in a cool sort of way where man i can just find my own world right. it's, it's about this you just he can't get over this like well the, this idea yeah. that the world isn't made for you yeah uh, and I know that sounds really cliched the way I'm describing it, and that's something you see in a lot of really cliched teen dramas, but this one is true. It really cuts down right into the heart of it. And I think it displays a really kind of profound, very sad, almost lamentable understanding of what it is to not connect and not understand the chaos of what the world has, is, is that the world is going to throw at you. And of course, she does come out on the other side in a very profound, very satisfying sort of way. This isn't a horrendous tragedy, luckily, but she lives a tragic life. And that kind of tragedy is something I think we can all relate to. Mm. This is uh, a beautiful film. It made me cry at several points. And uh, it is sensitive and human and humane uh, in a way where what you only get from uh, filmmakers like Hirokazu Koreeda or... Mm. or, um, Maybe not Terrence Malick, but uh, yeah, other Terrence Malick's not really mm. never been that guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in in sort of the more emotional moments of a Mike Lee film, where we kind of really see the reality of the situation, even the style isn't like those filmmakers at all. Uh, I'm I gotta look up the director's name as well. Uh, her name is uh, Kim Bora, and uh, I want to see more of Kim Bora now. <laughs> Just Kim Bora <laughs> has now created. Uh, kind of a masterpiece of of the year and oh i really 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 uh implore you to seek this thing out it's, where is it available it's, a good, it's got un, a weird release unfortunately right? well it's it's one of those films that's being released in like certain indie houses or through indie houses drive-in compatriots so you have to find your local theater that is showing it you have to go to the website find whatever your local theater is and then go to that theater's website to stream this online. So you have to, so you can stream it online, but it's not online. just like on Amazon. Yeah. You, 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 you kind of got to dig around a little, but please do it because it's totally worth it. Okay. Mm. Well, mm. damn. <laughs> I really, really loved uh, Hassapon. And here I saw Eurovision. Well, tell yeah. me about, <laughs> well, you know, we, 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 we go where we have to. We, we, mm. I just, I, I feel like, um, there's a gag in one of the robot chicken star Wars episodes mm. where, um, at the end of uh, Star Wars Episode Four, 
Darth Vader gets like knocked away from the Death Star on his TIE fighter. Mm. And the whole sketch is just Vader calling Emperor Palpatine to let him know the Death Star's been blown up. <laughs> and how just terrible that conversation is. And in the middle of it, while he's yelling at Vader, like, I don't believe this! The Death Star's been blown up by a bunch of teenagers! Hold on, I got another call. Uh, I don't know, a turkey club. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, fruit salad. I don't know, I'm not going to eat it. Like, like he's just trapped in his ship and it's disabled. And he's just yeah, the Emperor Palpatine has like, got him on hold as he's ordering lunch. Like, I don't know, what are you getting? I always order the wrong thing. I think about that a lot of time when we podcast. Like, I feel like I always pick the wrong thing. You pick. You got the best movies of the year. I got your vision. Not necessarily. You know, I, well, I, got, I got some turds, too. Oh, uh, okay. Is, uh, well, mm-hmm. let's talk about some other movies that you saw. You saw two movies that rhyme. So let's yeah. talk about Yummy. Yummy. Yummy is a turd. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Yummy is a new zombie film on Shudder. Uh, it's... Uh, international release that Shudder is distributing. They didn't actually uh, produce it. Yeah, they don't produce a lot of their own content, but they pick up a lot of mm. exclusive stuff from around the world. And uh, um, they have interesting taste, so usually it's pretty good, but not this time. Not this time. Uh, okay. th- this is about a, a young woman and her uh, boyfriend who is, the boyfriend is traveling with a ring in his pocket. He's going to propose. And she is going off to a really elite uh, plastic surgery clinic that's in a remote part of the woods in Europe. And uh, Dane DeHaan is there. Dane DeHaan is not there. Yeah, okay. But, you know, he may as well be. You're, you're talking about a cure for wellness? Good God. <laughs> Nobody remembers that movie. Actually, that movie's yeah. starting to get a minor cult. Mm. And people are actually just like, remember that movie? Wasn't that weird? I hear that on Twitter a lot. It, it was very it was very weird. Well, <laughs> it's, apparently that's enough. It's really ambitious, and it uh, didn't work one whit. Uh, but uh, he, they go... And she is there because she is looking to have breast reduction surgery. Uh, there's a lot of scenes early on where she's getting really sort of objectified and ogled and how uncomfortable she is. And there's a few cursory lines some lip service paid to the fact that these kinds of clinics are meant to uh, essentially uh, are, are made for sexist means mm. kind of to make women look the way men want them to look, even mm. though there's also a lot of feminist language, although no actual feminism about how these are, these women are doing it of their own age and say, in the movie, in the movie. Okay. Uh, the problem is all of that goes out the window because there's zombies there. Oh no. So I remember hearing that this is a movie about zombies attacking like a plastic surgery clinic. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, as high concepts go, I don't really see, how that's going to fit in? Like, how are they going to mm. use plastic surgery to fight the zombies? Or uh, it doesn't. So it just it makes for some interesting kills. Somebody is there to get liposuction, mm. and they accidentally hit reverse on the machine and they oh. explode. And it's really gross. Okay, that's gross. The the, the, the gore. That's effect, very broad. It's, it's so very broad. It's very comedic. Uh, well, the gore effects are first rate. Uh, okay. th- there are some awesome guts in this movie. Just intestines spilling out and actual art and blood spraying. Now that CGI crap. They use a lot of practical effects. And I appreciate when there are a lot of good gore effects, but it is in service of a dunderheaded kind of offensive movie mm. where uh, a guy's dick falls off in one scene. Um, oh, no. It is... His, his dick. If it were made in America for maybe half of the budget, this would be a trauma film. It's that kind of vibe wow. where they're trying to make raunchy jokes as often as they can. There are really broad caricatures. Why is there a zombie virus? Have you seen Resident Evil? It's kind of easy to predict. They tried to come up with mm-hmm. some kind of revolutionary plastic surgery that made zombies. Well, they just, they just stole that from Cronenberg then. That's just um, Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, same thing, but, you know, Rabbit. I mean, that steel is a harsh word, but you know what I mean. That's from Rabbit. That's it's, grandfathered it's, into the... That's yeah. a well-known trope now. Yeah. 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 Huh. 
Uh, and it ends up going down these really kind of nihilistic rabbit holes where just everybody's a dick to one another and, uh, and it doesn't end badly. For, it doesn't end well for anybody. Uh, no, it's, no. you, you get the sense early on in this thing that it's just not going to be fun. You, you have, you get the idea in your head that the filmmakers are going to take this in a gross direction and it, the, just the feeling just starts sinking more and more and more until you realize, Oh wait, we're just in gross territory now. I don't mean gross as in gore. I love gore. I love blood. I love guts. Mm-hmm. Uh, please rip human bodies apart. Tear in off a movie, a, in a movie, tear off a face, in open, a movie, open a leg, in a movie, eat a lung, in a movie, remove a rib cage, in a movie, have a steak, <laughs> wherever you want, wherever you want. <laughs> Just testing you. <laughs> but when it has a really bad sense of humor and when it clearly is made from a perspective of like it's a comedy film that has a, a hatred of humanity, I cannot abide. Mm. And uh, yeah, Yummy was just not fun to watch after a while. Wow. All the characters became really gross after a while. And then it has just just this horrendous nihilistic ending, which uh, d- is not fun to watch. Uh, if if you're an unhappy mutant, go for it. But uh, I'm, I'm a little too happy. <laughs> well, for again, this there's some people who like you know their their taste in the genre leads to is it gory? I'm in. Yeah. In which case, it sounds like it might be worth watching because it's really gory. Yeah, and again, if yeah. if, if you're in it just for the gore, yummy is good gore. Okay. Uh, e- even better than uh, Blood Quantum, which we saw recently. Yeah, our, which had our, pretty good gore. Uh, Blood Quantum and and what was the uh, mm. the one that took place in the Indian Reservation? That was Blood Quantum. The Blood Quantum. That's what. I, that's yeah, what I yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the gore in that one was quite good. Uh, they actually did a lot of really sort of interesting zombie effects. This one is just balls to the wall, Fangoria level gore. It's just okay. a lot of splatter. And if you're into splatter, good splatter. Not a good movie. Though. Okay. Well, uh, and then with the movie we saw. Now, this one actually needs a bit of an intro because this movie came out a while ago. Yes. And it came out in a bizarre format. Let's talk about Dummy. And not mm. to be confused, I just want to say mm. there is a very good indie film starring Adrian Brody and Mila Jovovich. It came out in like the early 2000s called Dummy, in which Adrian Brody uh, become decides he wants to be a ventriloquist. Mm. And that's kind of the whole movie. He doesn't like become a famous ventriloquist. He just decides to take this up. Mm. It's very sweet and should not be forgotten. It's a good movie. It is not this dummy. No. Uh, and this dummy actually came out back in April uh, when... Quibi launched. Remember Quibi? No. <laughs> Remember how it was such a big deal and they dumped a billion dollars into it and the billion dollars just caught on fire immediately? Uh, Quibi is an interesting new high concept notion in media consumption. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the K and SKG of DreamWorks, and also, you know, gigantic producer, muckety muck, Hollywood star player for many, many years had an idea that uh, observed that a lot of people were consuming a lot of media on their phones. They were watching them on like commutes and only watching like maybe 10 minute YouTube videos, uh, like little short form videos. And he figured, why not make that into a professional platform? Hmm. Why not have professional movies that can are only to be watched on your phones and can only be consumed in 10 minute chapters. They are quick bites. Queepy. Uh, People bristled at this idea right away. I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea, uh, given the way people consume their media. Yeah. If, if everybody's on their phone, why not have professional production value on a phone? Sam Raimi's directed some TV for them already. Steven Spielberg is working on a show for Quibi. And uh, Dummy is a film uh, that, while not written by or directed by Dan Harmon, the Rick and Morty guy, mm. it's about him. 
What? Curiously. <laughs> uh, what? This is a very strange film. Uh, you can And you can watch it on Quibi in 10 minute, like uh, nine, 10 minute chapters. Okay. Anna Kendrick plays a character named Cody Heller. Cody Heller is a real person who, who dated Dan Harmon. Okay. Anna Kendrick plays this and uh, Cody Heller also wrote it. Okay. Uh, and evidently it's based on... Dan and Dan Herman has a podcast, and he's very frank about his sexual proclivities on this podcast. Evidently, this is okay. brought up in the film, and it is revealed in the first. Uh, Dan Herman is played by Donal Loge in the movie. Okay, that's good casting. Uh, they they look very alike. Yeah, they, they do. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, he it, it's revealed in the early scene that he has a sex doll, mm. like one of those thousands of dollar uh, silicone human shaped oh. human sized sex dolls like the real the real dolls the real a real doll like Lars and the real girl with uh, Ryan Gosling exactly okay, it's yeah. like a, a silicone person that, that he's owned for many many years uh, she seems to be very game about his sexual proclivities she likes to play along she gets a little weirded out by the doll though mm. like that that's it's not one toke over the line but she kind of has to get used to this idea that he yeah. has this doll in his closet uh, and then that night she goes to use the bathroom and the doll starts talking to her she opens it up. She learns that the doll's name is Barbara. Okay. Barbara is a foul mouth. Barbara okay. yells at her for uh, kind of taking a back seat to the star. And in this curious turn of events becomes a very good friend of hers and also a writing partner where they have to make a pilot together. <laughs> Remember that one episode of the new Twilight Zone where a guy's houseplant helped him write I Love Lucy reruns? I thought that was American... Uh, um, oh, that was Amazing Stories. I, mean, I think maybe. it was Amazing Stories. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Around that time. But yes, I, yes, I do remember the, that. Uh, amazing Stories episode about a, a screenwriting fern. Yeah. Uh, this is very similar where the Anna Kendrick, who's very game, by the way. Oh, she's one of the most game actors yeah. we've ever had. She will throw herself into anything, and she's always good in it. And they have really, really raunchy dialogue. They say some things that are brazenly offensive. There's a bit where uh, the sex doll is not getting the sexual attention it needs, so they try to seduce a 14-year-old, and that's really untoward. Yes. It's actually the one scene that I think uh, they could probably have done without in the movie. Yeah, it's really... Uh, but they yeah. also have, Yikes. like, sort of... Uh, Thelma and Louise moment where she is so used to talking to the doll, she just puts it around her shoulder and goes into a convenience store and the convenience store is being robbed. <laughs> okay. Uh, and they start talking about what does it mean to make a feminist parable in 2020 with a real, a real woman and a sex doll. And that's a question what I've never you, been asked before. And what do, what do these two women write into their parable? And how do you write something that can pass the Bechdel test? They're actually, they, there's this long conversation about the Bechdel test. And they said, oh, well, surely we can write something about the Bechdel test. Wait a minute. Our conversation, we were just talking about my boyfriend. So right now we're not passing the Bechdel test. Mm. Okay, well, uh, well, what else can we talk about? Well, um, ah, oh, Jesus. Oh, wait, does Jesus count? Because we're talking about a man. The, the Bechdel test, by the way, uh, is a test to see if a movie is concerned with female experiences and perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, if a movie doesn't contain at least, and this is a general rule of thumb and there are exceptions on both sides, mm -hmm. but the, the idea is if a movie doesn't contain at least one scene in which women are talking to each other and not about a man, mm -hmm. 
then it's probably not super concerned with the female characters. Right, right. So, again, now, there's a lot of exceptions to that, and there's a lot of, like, a, a, addendums that have been made to that mm-hmm. over over the years. And it's, and, it's also yeah. no judgment of a film's uh, quality or sensitivity. Not necessarily, it's, yeah. no. It's just sort of it's, a general it's a, a, guideline. It's, a good, it's a good way to gauge uh, if, if a female experience is being accurately represented in yes. a film. If it has two female characters, they both have to be named, and they have to talk about something other than a man. Yeah. And they're concerned that all of their conversations are about their boyfriends because it is a dating comedy. Mm. Um, this is a really, really bizarre experience. It sounds it. And having it like shattered up on Quibi makes it a little more strange because they've actually broken it out into sort of a ten act structure. Okay. Where there's like little little climaxes throughout, so there'll be like, so it's a, like big, a web series, a big plot point, and then it'll cut. So it's like a web series. It's kind of like a web series, but I think it's meant to be consumed. I guess however you like Quibi. Quick bites. You can do it in ten minute segments, or you can. Is that what Quibi is short for? Yeah, quick Quibi. I said that. Quib. I zoned out for that. I guess you could call it Quib Quibi. Yeah, that would be Quibi. Quibi. You can say Quibi. I think it, okay. I think they're selling it as Quibi. Okay. Well, the sci the sci fi uh, network don't want us to call it Siffy, but that's how they spell it. It is the Siffy network now yeah. because they can copyright Siffy. Yeah. <laughs> they can't copyright the, the term sci fi. Uh, I was weirdly exhilarated by this because it is so unusual and because it is coming from such a high profile platform that this is one of the things they chose to launch on shows a lot about the coming character of what they they're going to have going for them because they're going to do weird stuff. They're going to take some chances. They didn't just do like a typical thriller. They didn't do a relationship drama. They did this really brazen, bizarre, broad comedy based on real life and starring real people, but played by movie stars and crass words from a talking sex doll. The talking sex doll, by the way, has an animated face. They do CGI on the face. They okay. don't superimpose a human face. Is it creepy or is it, it is like funny? It is supremely or? creepy because clearly the animators didn't have the doll's face necessarily from all angles. So the mouth is weirdly skewed in some shots or the eyes aren't quite looking in the right direction. It looks fake, which I think is supposed to be... The, on purpose. Don't tell me if this is a spoiler. Okay. But I am curious. Is are we living in a world where just like all real dolls are real people, or is it actually like questionable whether our protagonist is not well? Well, she she openly says constantly to the sex doll throughout that you're just me. You're okay. telling me things I so already know. So she's projecting and she's yeah, aware she, of it. This is just a literalization of that. Yeah, but okay. she and, and other people can't hear the doll talking, okay. and also she um and she's she's aware that she yeah. is using this as like a writing tool. Exactly. Sort of. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. That, that's fair. All right. Uh, yeah. Quibi. I, I wasn't interested in Quibi until I heard how badly they were failing. Because you know me, I, I love a good failure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the UPN is the best network in the world just because of how badly they failed. They lost nearly and a billion dollars. Quibi has already lost over a billion dollars. Wow, you're they, better than UPN. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, if they can lose more money than the UPN in a twentieth of the time. <laughs> I'm going to be interested. So I subscribe to Quibi and I'm going to consume Quibi stuff right now. They are, they're running that remake of the princess bride. The what now they remade the Well, they're doing sort of like a home video remake of the princess bride where they've asked, you know, a hundred celebrities to each take like a scene or two. Okay. And they're rotating and they're all filming these at their home. It's a a quarantine safe remake of of the princess bride. So that's actually funny. Seen the first chapter. uh, The grandson has been played by a, the adult Fred Savage. Okay. And then in the switch, and it's Josh Gad. 
Uh, the the grandfather comes in. It's Adam Sandler, and then it switches to Rob Reiner, who directed The Princess Bride. <laughs> oh, okay, that's weird. Uh, Buttercup has been played by uh, 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 Tiffany Haddish and okay. Zazie Beetz. Uh, the first Wesley was, of course, Chris Pine. Oh, well, that's that's yeah. good. That's good casting, actually. Uh, yeah. yeah, he should just right. do the whole thing. But he yeah, should, they're yeah. they're rotating through, and then Hugh Jackman is is the Chris Sarandon character, also good casting. Also really good. Okay, yeah. that actually sounds really fun. It's a really fun idea. Yeah. Everyone's saying, uh, you know, Quibi says we're going to remake the Princess Bride. And everyone says, first of all, fuck you, you're Quibi. No, <laughs> nobody's paying attention to you. Secondly, how dare you remake the Princess Bride? But yeah, you know, actually you, doing this funny once you, way. Okay. Once you start consuming Quibi, you realize, wait a minute. Is this secretly brilliant? Is this, is this a good platform that we're just sort of poo-pooing because we're not ready for it yet? Okay. This might be like five years ahead of its time. I'm actually too hip for the room. Mm. Well, damn, Whitney, you might have just sold me on Quibi. Okay, well, holy did, shit. Did you subscribe to Quibi because of what I said? Let me know. Okay. Two weeks are free. We're not, we are not getting any money from Quibi. I no. want to make this abundantly clear. Quibi is not a sponsor. We do not have show. a sponsor. If we had a sponsor, we would have two microphones instead of one. Okay? We would not, it's not a thing. Anyway. Uh, that, that's dummy, and I recommend dummy. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's let's get to the review. So, uh, on the critically acclaimed scale, we review films on a scale of C minus to C plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, a C is an average movie. Most movies are about average. C minus is below average. Everything from eh, we don't recommend it to mm-hmm. this movie stinks out loud. And then C plus is above average, which is typically we recommend this or this is the best movie of the year or better. Mm-hmm. So on a scale of C minus to C plus, dummy. Dummy is a C. Okay. It's it's an ambitious, strange film. It do, it's not one hundred percent successful. Okay. But uh, I I was enjoying myself throughout. Okay. So e- a, even though it's crass and strange and and even bad in some portions. So qualified positivity. Yeah, qualified okay. positivity. Yummy. Yummy is big piece of crap. It might okay. be one of the worst films of the year. Oh my that is God. a C minus. Oh no. House of Hummingbird. House of Hummingbird is one of the best films of the year. Yay! That is a C plus. Well, that's good. I have to check that one out. Yeah. Uh, my Spy. My Spy is a C minus. There's nothing interesting or uh, exciting or fun to recommend this film. Yeah, I'm also going to give it a C minus. I like some of the cast, but man, the, the movie doesn't seem to. No. Like Kristen Schaal has like, they. it's like they film her like they don't like her. Like yeah. she's she's just like the lighting on her is harsh and un, and unforgiving and, and she like, plays a mean character eh, like not like really but I, I got I got a kind of kind of nagging wife quality that you know Kristen Shaw like is clearly being directed badly like to be yeah. be more caustic than I think she would be I, I don't even think that's in the material but mm. all right um, but yeah it's just this it adds nothing new to it it's mm. not it's never interesting or exciting enough to like if you really have to watch this movie watch one of the others of this movie a Kindergarten Cop still holds up pretty good it actually which, does. which is a weird thing to say because it, it, it was derided at the time i know but it's actually like it's a little darker than people remember but so is my spy mm. so fuck it watch kindergarten cop it's a better film it's the best burly baby oh you you recommended a film once called was it called the boy and the bear or oh, the boy the, and the, the beast which is the boy and the, the same thing it's okay. an anime film about a boy who runs away from home and ends up in a subterranean world of monsters mm. where he is raised by a loner a warrior who is very much inspired by uh, Toshiro Mifune. Mm. And uh, they end up sort of bringing out the best in each other. It's was, not so much a burly babysitter so much as it is in 
um, Atypical Family. Okay. But that is an no, amazing just, movie, and I'm glad you brought it up just mm. for any reason. Uh, but yeah, I also just give does. my I, I, I know there are good films within this genre. Is sure, point. but they're few and far between. The genre doesn't lend itself to high quality, <laughs> but it has been done. Um, and then Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Uh, this, I'm not going to give it a C+, but this is definitely a C, like a solid mm-hmm. C. It's too long, and when it's not funny, it's just not funny. But it's never, like, painful not funny. It's just sort of like, oh, I see what they're going for. This is mildly diverting. And then occasionally I would get a big old belly laugh, and then Dan Stevens would do something amazing, or Rachel McAdams would do something amazing. And by the end, I actually did care. So, yeah, I I don't dislike this movie, but it's not particularly good. I'm not going to give it a C-. I'll give it a low C. Okay. It just... It's not going to stick with me. It's just going to slip out of my hands. Did you like any of the songs? The songs were fine. Uh, unfortunately, I, they're not like hummable. Yeah. But yeah, I did like, I like the, the big finale song and I like Dan Stevens' song. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's it for uh, the main review segment. Now, the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. Every week on our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we invite our patrons to select a film from one streaming service or another. We try to vary it every single week, vary genres every single week. Um, and uh, then we're going to focus on a film that either Whitney or myself or both mm-hmm. have never seen before, or at worst, maybe we saw once when we were a little kid and we don't remember it. Yeah. So like the idea is this is a fresh take. We don't, we're not bringing a lot of baggage to it. And this week, we decided to class up the joint. We're going to go to the Criterion channel, and we're going to focus on the French New Wave, which, let's just be fair, in terms of chronology, we're just getting further and further away, and it just seems more and more like history to a lot of people. Mm. But the French New Wave was actually a really exciting time for cinema. It actually really blew open like what was cinema was capable of and what we expected from mm. cinema. And as a result, it's something that I think people would do well to revisit. And I think when you watch a lot of French New Wave films, not all, but a lot of them, they still feel more alive and vibrant than a lot of the schlock we get today. Like mm-hmm. when you, if you watch any French New Wave film after you watch My Spy, you're just like, oh thank God, feelings, actual observations, <laughs> things that happen in life, oh. actual experimentation yeah, with storytelling. Holy shit! Oh. Well, uh, the French New Wave is uh, has often been cited as uh, being made by a generation who was raised on film. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, it happened. You know, cinema had been around for... Oh, half a century, uh, by yeah, yeah, about about 60 years at that point, longer. And even though you know people were raised on cinema and were making films all throughout this, uh, this was the first one that was sort of wearing its influences on its sleeve, this movement. Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, many of the people who were involved in the French New Wave were famous film critics yeah. beforehand, people like Francois Truffaut. Uh, they were writing for stuff like Cahiers du Cinéma. Uh, may it rest in peace. May, oh, God. That was such a tragedy. Oh, my God, that's was, recent, too. Yeah. That thing was around forever. But... Um, they were th- this generation of French filmmakers and French film critics were very aware of their influences and were very aware of what Hollywood was giving overseas. Uh, and they wanted to respond to that. And in some cases, that meant taking these Hollywood influences and doing something new and interesting with them, sometimes trying to legitimize them. And mm-hmm. in other cases, it means spitting in the face of genre and cinematic convention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and we see like a lot of the formal movements 
in cinema are typically a reaction to something where like younger or uh, very hungry filmmakers uh, decide very consciously sometimes to fly in the face of something. Mm -hmm. So like the Italian neorealist movement came after the long wave of propaganda films that came out of uh, World War II and fascist Italy. So now there's a whole bunch of movies made by filmmakers who were desperate to tell human stories and who are now stripping away every single piece of artifice possible in order mm -hmm. to tell as human a story as you can. And that's where we get classics like Rome, Open City, or Bicycle Thieves. Um, so here we have a bunch of film critics, people who live and breathe cinema, who've been writing smart things about cinema, and now they're going to make their own cinema. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a little reductive, but if it helps you put it in your head, these were the Tarantinos of the day. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. these were the people who were actively influenced by what they were seeing. They knew their audience would recognize the influences and they were mm -hmm. telling stories in that vein and trying to honor what had come before and push cinema mm -hmm. in brand new directions. No, I... The film that is most frequently credited as the one that started it all was uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people, a lot of film students watch Breathless and hate it uh, because <laughs> it's because it. it's kind of opaque. Uh, I actually really like Breathless, but I think it's one of those things that you should watch at the end of film school mm. when you kind of can openly acknowledge a little bit more as to what it's doing. Like you have to know a lot about cinema and the history of cinema. To, Especially at the time, to, yeah. to kind of get into to Godard's head. Uh, yeah, to and, see why Breathless feels revolutionary, you need to however, understand what happened before the revolution, and we're living yeah. after the revolutions. So. However, Paris belongs to us was in production before Breathless. Yeah. Breathless just beat it to theaters. So which whichever one, you know, and, well, and and, and Four Hundred Blows before yeah. both of them to theaters. Uh, mm -hmm. Four Hundred Blows was the first film uh, feature film anyway directed by Francois Truffaut. Uh, Francois Truffaut was a noted film critic um, and. Uh, it, for the Horn to Blows, which is also available on Criterion Channel, and it's maybe not necessary, but it'll really help if you see this before Stolen Kisses, because it yeah. puts a, gets a lot of context. Four Hundred Blows is about a young boy. His name is Antoine Doinel, and uh, he is, what is he, like 13, 14? Uh, he's, he, he's a teenager. Yeah, young teenager. And uh, kind of like you were talking about with House of Hummingbird, he's, a, he's been labeled a problem kid. Yeah. And yeah, he's I'm, not doing anything terrible. But he's also never doing anything that satisfies anyone. Well, and uh, what I like about Stolen Kisses is, like, 400 Blows has a kind of rebellious quality. It's about a kid who doesn't fit in, and he just sort of runs away. He gets to yeah. be a little bit rebellious, and it yeah. has has what, what I was uh, talking about, what House of Hummingbird doesn't have, that kind of punk rock outsider quality. Mm -hmm. That's something that the 400 Blows does have, and that's yeah. not a bad thing. No. It, in fact, it's done really well, but it, and it lets you relate to the character really, really well, especially when he comes upon... Uh, teachers and adults who just don't get him. Yeah. Uh, when we come back to the same character, uh, two films later in this series, they actually mm -hmm. kept on making a lot of uh, films about Antoine. And we'll, we'll walk uh, you through the other two in a minute. Yeah. Um, he's an adolescent and he's reaching the age where he's expected to settle into a groove to find a vocation. Mm. And, uh, I see this in a lot of French films, actually, about this notion that your vocation, your job, uh, is the thing that's going to give your life a little bit of a bedrock. It's the thing that's going to give you meaning and put you on the right path. Yeah. Uh, that, that's true in America, but th there seem to be more French films about it, curiously. Well, there's so many. Think um, about how many American movies are just the, the protagonist's job doesn't matter. Yeah, the you just have a job. Yeah, it's not important, mm -hmm. or if it is, it's minor. Like, every once in a while your job is important if you're like, if you solve mysteries mm -hmm. or whatever, but... 
And but yeah. you know, when we meet the uh, Antoine at the beginning of Stolen Kisses, he's uh, be- essentially being drummed out of military academy. Yeah. When we uh, and we we should we should give people the context. Okay. A little, yeah. A little yeah, bit yeah. More, yeah. So four hundred blows. I'm, I'm going to give you the broad strokes mm-hmm. of four hundred blows because you should see it, and I don't want to ruin all the details. Um, he's growing up in a, a, a family. They're poor. And frankly, both the parents have kind of checked out. There's a scene in The Simpsons, which I don't think is a specific reference to the 400 Blows, but it feels like it, Hmm. where uh, they're talking about Ned Flanders' parents and how he's a problem kid. And they say, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. (laughs) That's kind of what Antoine Toinelle's parents did. Like, every time they, like, treat him, like, with respect and act like a family, he's actually a pretty good kid and he's doing fine. But every other time they interact with him, they're doing pretty bad parenting things. Not wicked per se but bad like trying to bribe him into getting good grades or keeping him so busy with chores all night that he can't do his homework and then getting mad about him for not getting his homework done so he's kind of stuck in a rock in a hard place and he's at a point where he just wants to live on his own but he's a kid so he has no options mm-hmm. so he ends up skipping school and just wandering around paris and then of course eventually he ends up doing petty crime and he gets locked up and it's not like one of those like juvenile delinquent movies where it's all about you know scaring kids into not doing bad things. It's basically like, well, I mean that would happen, wouldn't it? Doesn't that kind of suck? And it does, and it ends on a very ambiguous note. Several years later, Francois Truffaut revisited the character in a short film called Antoine and Colette. Uh, this is part of a larger film that featured international directors all telling stories about twenty somethings in love. Um, and that short film, which is also available on Criterion. Uh, it's really great. Mm. It's a really, really, really good short. And it's about him. He's young. He randomly runs into a girl and he just has this immediate fixation on her. He's never really had a romance that we know of. Mm. And he tries so hard to like ingratiate himself into her life that he is oblivious to the fact that she's not into him. Mm. And he ends up getting forming a stronger relationship with her parents who actually like him. That he does with her. And like the whole thing ends with him watching TV with her parents while she goes out and dates someone else. Mm. And when we hit Stolen Kisses, he's kind of in the same place. He's not matured when it comes to romance. He's still very obsessive. And he's still just sort of wandering around from job Mm. to job. And he hasn't really found any purpose or really goals in life. He's just fucking around because he doesn't have any reason not to. And uh, I think that's uh, something anybody can relate to. I, I was reminded a lot of Francis Ha, uh, the Noah Baumbach, Noah Baumbach slash Greta Gerwig film that, sure. that they made together, uh, where that's very much a film about how you, you should pursue your dreams. You have your ideas, but when you reach a certain age and you haven't succeeded, it's not cute anymore. Yeah. The, the struggle isn't charming any longer. It's just sort of sad. You should probably at least get a job that pays the bills. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, how, how long do I plug away at trying to achieve my dreams? Oh, I'm 30. Shit. Um, and that doesn't and, mean you should give up, but Frances Ha, it's like she wasn't trying literally anything else. Yeah. And it just... Yeah. Well, and, and there's practical concerns. Uh, and I feel like Antoine Donnell is is very much in that mind. He's still a teenager, but mm-hmm. he is very much expected to have his life at least a little bit more in order at this point, mm-hmm. and to have his vocation, and to uh, and so he tries a bunch of different jobs, but he doesn't know what he wants to do. When we, He's not good at anything, and I think that really cements a little bit more. I feel like I'm not articulating this well. well it cements a, a kind of outsider quality that you can have in childhood. And can carry into adulthood in a way that's not cool. I feel like what this movie is very much trying to do is it's trying to take these sort of stories about 
how someone becomes an adult mm. and just sort of smash him to little pieces and show it's not that easy, especially yeah. with someone like Antoine, who, you know, it'd be so easy to make this character like, I don't know, like the kid from Boyhood, where like, oh, he's like, he's like all of us. And like, no, he's a very specific character. Mm. And he actually is kind of an asshole. Yeah. And I like that about him. I like that Truffaut is... I mean, th- a lot of people see these movies as sort of autobiographical from Truffaut, and I'm not sure how true that is, but if so, I think Truffaut knows he's been kind of a dick. And <laughs> the movie opens, Stolen Kisses opens with Antoine Duanel in military prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he actually joined the military thinking, this will give me the structure that everyone told me I needed, and then he ends up spending half the time AWOL because he can't be bothered and he doesn't listen to authority. So they kick him out with a dishonorable discharge, and now the rest of the movie is him doing two things. One, trying to get into relationships with women who do not want him because he's an immature little dick (laughs) and wandering from job to job. And a lot of the jobs that he's in are the kind of jobs that would be portrayed very seriously or romanticized in movies. And here they're not seen as very interesting. Like Mm -hmm. it shows he's uh, he's like running the night uh, uh, shift at a hotel. hotel. And there have been movies like Grand Hotel or The Bellboy or whatever where like, ah, this would be such interesting. You meet so many interesting people and he's quickly like fired from that because he lets people con him into breaking in someone's room and starting a scene. And then the rest of the movie, he's a private detective. (laughs) He's becoming a private detective. This is so French New Wave. Uh, Yeah. the, The way they're, yeah, looking at certain professions and the way they're uh, romanticized specifically in American films and how saying that these are really commonplace dull things in real life that do not give your life meaning. No, there's, I actually, this has actually become one of my favorite private detective movies very, very quickly (laughs) because again, you've seen so many, you've seen the Maltese Falcon and Mm. you've seen all these private detective movies where it's all badass or sinister or sexy. And in actuality, it's usually just someone coming in saying, I think my wife's cheating on me. Or, and, and there's actually, like, one person who is actually hiring this private detective agency, where Antoine Donnell is, like, one of, like, three guys who works there. Mm. And he's hired them to say, like, nobody likes me and I'd like to find out why. So they says, okay, well, uh, we'll hire Antoine at your shoe store and he'll talk to your employees and he'll figure it out. And then, sure enough, Antoine, because he's an obsessive little dick immediately falls in love with the dude's wife mm. and like and, when she, and she's and she's the one who's kind of seducing him though a little bit because like he's but this he, young man and he's but he doesn't know any better so he yeah. just sort of goes along with it even though he's trying to date a woman his age he falls in love so easily it makes your head spin like he'll, he'll like call into the office to tell him okay here's what i found out for the night yeah his wife uh, his wife came into the store okay describe her she's an elegant goddess and i love everything <laughs> about her i mean how tall she is the perfect height fucking dick so he's completely inappropriate and he's very very obsessive and he's dating someone kind of it's this incredibly awkward loveless relationship it's not colette she shows up for one scene but he's doing the exact same thing she's just like her she looks like her and she gives him a little bit more of the time of day but he's a jerk to her she tends to avoid him sometimes and he's got a closer relationship with her parents than he does to her probably because his own parents didn't seem very interested in him and i think he's trying to ingratiate himself into parents more than he is actually women Mm. because he's way more satisfied hooking up with sex workers which he does multiple times he's just 
kind of pathetic. Yeah, well, and, and, that's, and that's the point, yeah. is that he's pathetic. Uh, this, what, uh, what Truffaut was doing with the Antoine character was essentially robbing something that we've taken for granted, especially in American film, mm-hmm. and that is a character with drive. The mm. character is usually motivated to do something, and that's I actually must win Eurovision. Yeah, there, there's the, and that's a that's a common screenwriting term. What's the motivation? What is motivating the character? What do they want to do? What does Antoine want to do? Uh, nothing. He's got nothing. Yeah. He he doesn't have a dream he wants to fulfill. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a goal he's working towards. His appetites are very fleeting. He wants something in a moment, but it's not necessarily something that's going to drive him the rest of his life. And he'll get completely distracted the next yeah, time anything and, shiny comes along. Exactly. It's yeah. like, oh, that's what I want for, with my life. That's what I want with my life. And I feel like that's a little bit more true to life. Uh, I don't think people wake up in the morning with a dream. That's why you hear that from a lot of like motivational speakers and stuff. What do you want out of your life? What do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up, kid? Mm-hmm. It's like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Well, in this economy, I'm really going to have like five different gigs as I grow up. You yeah. know, it's People change their careers mm-hmm. way more often in real life than they do in movies. Yeah, uh, Movies I'm, will leave you to believe you'll have a few shitty jobs, and then you'll find your dream it. job before you're 30, and that's that. I'm not sure what the actual percentage of people who go on to work in the field that they majored in in college uh, is it's probably uh, it's lower probably than you really, think. Really, really low. Um, I remember my, my dad. My, my sister runs a judo dojo. Yeah. She majored in anthropology. My dad majored in uh, history, and he mm. ended up going into education. In fact, he actually told mm. me when I was in like my late twenties and trying to figure my shit out because like I knew I wanted to do something entertainment, but I wasn't sure if I mm. found my groove yet. And he was like, I didn't figure out what I wanted to do with my life until my early thirties. Don't don't yeah, fret yeah. about it. And some people don't until they're much later. Some people never do. Yeah. And that's and you know what that's got to be okay too. You I'm, only get re- one life. We're going to be a little forgiving if you don't find your your goal. I'm, I'm reminded of a Wondermark comic. Do you know Wondermark? Vaguely, it's a comic strip, and uh, it, it it's a comic strip that uh, it, rather than illustrations, it's uh, like cutouts from like Victorian catalogs. Mm-hmm. And the the conversation went. Uh, you should you should follow your dreams, and you should always work for your goal. And uh, somebody says, "Say that's true." If you ask my third grade class. Uh, what you know? What we're gonna be when we grow up? You're gonna have like a bunch of astronauts, a bunch of dancers, and a ninja. You know, yeah, and one ninja. Is that a good way to run a society? When those kids grow up and they all follow their dreams and they get their dream jobs, well, let's just hope that somebody really wants to uh, tackle sewage maintenance as a passion, mm-hmm. because otherwise everything's gonna fall apart. You know. In fact, it's an absolute necessity that the bulk of people in this world do something they don't want to do. Well, okay, I'm going to stop you right there because uh, I actually, I, I'm actually going to fight you on that because I think that's a that's a simplification, obviously, because uh, it's a joke. Um, but there's a couple of things with that because I've heard this argument before from you a few times as you've recounted this uh, anecdote. Yeah. And um, A, dreams change. Yeah. What we dream of being when we're third grade changes because we're a different person later on in our lives and then we're a different person mm-hmm. later and so that's fine. Also, some people dream in more vague ways. You know, some mm-hmm. like some people are happy doing their job provided they feel that their job provides a valuable service. Doesn't yeah. necessarily matter what their job is. They like being productive and helpful. So like sewage treatment, it's not glamorous, but someone's gotta do it, and I feel mm-hmm. like I'm contributing. Yeah. I've known people who didn't care what they did. So long as at the end of the day, they made enough money that they can put a roof over their family's heads and they can spend time with their kids. Hmm. That's fine. 
That's totally fine. This is one of the reasons why one of my favorite Pixar movies is Monsters University. <laughs> because the whole thing yeah. is, Kwasowski has a dream, and it's he learns so that, underrated. This and movie, he learns yeah. that his dream is not his aptitude, mm. and he has to adjust. And eventually, he's incredibly happy. You know, Monsters U would make a good double feature with Stolen Kisses. So you're right. About how being being a little bit aimless. Now, of course, Antoine doesn't find his passion. That's sort of the point of these he, Antoine Duanel he, he movies. He might later on. I actually haven't seen. Yeah. There's two more after this. Yeah, and yeah, I haven't seen. Them we got to see him as. An I'm adult. totally going to now because I actually had only seen 400 Blows. No one had ever spoken to me too much in detail about the other films. So in my head, I'm thought, well, okay, it's not a priority. I don't have to get to them. Yeah. But now that I've seen how good Stolen Kisses is. And it's wonderful, and it doesn't shy away from how unlikable the protagonist can be, which makes it okay that he's sometimes unlikable. Mm. Um, and it's relatable when it needs to be. That sort of young quarter-life ennui uh, is something that I don't think has gone away. The mm. details have shifted, obviously, but um, I love the ending. I don't want to ruin it for you, but suffice it to say, Antoine Dunnell meets like another version of him in a way. And, just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's like the only indication he might have grown a little bit, mm. is that he's just like, well, that he can rec- <laughs> well that he can he can recognize himself now yeah. so there's like this little tiny twinge of self-awareness yeah he, he might be growing as a person but then again he might not I know a little I know enough about some of the later films that I know he's got patterns he's gonna keep falling mm. back on like a lot of people uh, but I think when it comes I think we're we can all relate to sort of the plight of Antoine Duanel in a really significant way mm. a lot of people go out into the world and, and chase their dreams a lot of them find meaning in their vocation some people just sort of do what's in front of them. They do with what they do what they can with whatever ever opportunity is presented to them, and they just sort of stay on that track for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of my jobs are very circumstantial and not necessarily based on a passion I had for many many years, or even a passion I came up with on the spot. Mm. Uh, in fact, of passion, I've been very, look, get away from the garbage. I've been very discouraged every time I do chase a passion; it tends to fall apart. Uh, so I, I can kind of relate to this idea of somebody who whose passions aren't in lock with the way society thinks passions operate. Well, and I'm actually, in, you know, it's interesting. I'm actually kind of in a place like that now where mm. the industry has, you know, kind of it's shut very down a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I'm asking myself, you know, will I do this forever? Mm. Part of me would really, really like to. Part of me, on the other hand, would be like, maybe it's not going to be an option. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. This, maybe I need to reevaluate so and think about, you know, and these, these are hard questions that sometimes people have to ask mm. themselves. And, yeah, it's it's rough and life is complicated and that's one of the great things about the French New Wave is that it's not about like delivering us pat messages, these reassuring everything's going to be okay if you follow your dream things because sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be okay too. And and but what I love about Stolen Kisses is that it's not a tragedy. It's not no. like I don't have a goal and he becomes completely destitute. It's just that he's aimless. Yeah. And again, and when you put this next to the 400 blows where you see that aimlessness as a uh, kind of tragic, a tragic quality for a child because a child is being ignored and they're slipping through the cracks, uh, then it, yeah, it becomes a little bit more emotionally fraught and it becomes, I think, a little bit more, the word I used was cool. That's not quite the right word, but mm. it, it becomes a little bit, uh, workable from an outsider perspective that kid can grow up and actually find something on the outside and there's actually a lot for you on the outside yeah uh and i think stolen kisses is like okay no he doesn't know how to traverse the outside or the inside he hasn't discovered an outside all he knows is what's right in front of him he doesn't have a, a long attention span he's not terribly intelligent 
he's intelligent in a poetic sort of way, but that's not useful on he's a day-to-day well basis. He's well-read, but he doesn't actually gain any insider yeah. wisdom from it, which is yeah. interesting. It's actually, I was thinking about this, you know, because Francois Truffaut's films are often involve people who love the cinema or are inspired by the cinema. And there are little nods mm. here and there in Stolen Kisses, but there's this really amazing uh, bit in The 400 Blows, which I think I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Mm. Where uh, Antoine Duanel accidentally set the apartment on fire and his mom says, fuck it, we're going to a movie. And his dad's like, oh, God, great, we're teaching him great lessons. <laughs> and they decide to go to a movie. And what the movie they go to is Paris Belongs to Us. <laughs> Two things with that. Mm. One, Paris Belongs to Us was in production before The 400 Blows. So Truffaut probably thought it would be out by the time The 400 Blows came out. It ended up coming out four years after The 400 Blows came out. It's excellent, by the way. Paris I've, Belongs to Us is awesome. I've actually never seen it, yeah. but it's a, it's this weird meta gag that didn't pan out, and instead it set the movie in the future, <laughs> which is real weird. The other thing is, this movie ends up becoming like one of his happiest memories. Like It's like the last time him and his family actually seemed to have like a really good time together, and later on in 400 Blows, as he's being like carted away to Juvenile Hall, he's like looking out the window, and he sees the marquee is still playing Paris Belongs to Us. Hmm. Tell people what Paris Belongs to Us is about. Uh, well, Paris Belongs to Us is uh, um, Jacques Rivette. Yep. And yeah, it's about this sort of, uh, it's, it's you know, artists, bohemian artists in Paris yeah. and just sort of their various experiences. So it's basically his like big entertaining movie that he went to see with his parents was a French new wave film about existential crises. Mm. Well, and, and about it's about the artistic community, right? Mm. But I think it's interesting that it's like the the films are set at this transitional period in French art, and mm. Antoine Duanel is very enamored of you know Balzac and older stories about like romantic tragedy and shit, but while it, the world it, around him is changing and getting more modern, it's all, incredibly modern. And uh, when we start stolen kisses, dreams are gone. The fir- one of the first shots in the movie is that theater closed. Yeah, it was shuttered at the time, and in fact, there was a big letter writing campaign to reopen it. Uh, just because the French needed their cinema. Yeah. Well, we need we need their cinema too. And yeah. uh, seriously, watch, watch more French movies, please. Please. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of French movies available on Criterion. A lot of French New Wave films available on mm. Criterion. You can find some of them elsewhere. Four Hundred Blows is on HBO Max, and uh, by all means, please. They're, if you haven't yeah, seen a lot of the French New Wave, explore, examine. They're all available. If you want yeah. to start with Jean-Luc Godard, go with Vive Sa Vie. Okay. The film he made after Breathless. Uh, not the a film mm. he made after Breathless. Uh, um, I highly recommend it, it's like breathless but better mm-hmm. uh, 400 Blows is a great starting mm-hmm. point uh, Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7 I think is one of the most alive movies I've ever mm-hmm. seen um, I absolutely adore that film um, if you want to get really heady uh, you might want to check out the films of Elaine Resnay <laughs> uh, uh, last year Marion Bad is like one of the most like head trippy movies ever it's bloody exhilarating if you're like an art student. You've really got to be on the film's mm. wavelength. If you're not, you'll just fall asleep. If you are though, and you're trying to like engage with it and solve the movie like a puzzle, it's mm. absolutely fascinating. And it's actually mm. one of my favorite films of the year. Mm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's critically acclaimed for this week. Thank you everybody for listening next week. We will be back. We decided for the next week's poll for the critically acclaimed streaming club. We were going to do musicals, on Amazon. Now, the last time we did an Amazon movie, we decided to do Westerns, and we ended up with the musical Paint Your Wagon, so, and it hurt. <laughs> so this time, hopefully, <laughs> we're on better ground. Although, uh, one of our options is uh, 
from what I under, I haven't seen it, but mm-hmm. from what I understand, quite a bad film. Uh, yeah, it was it was a kiss of the not kiss of the vampire. I kissed a vampire. I kissed a vampire was one of the options. However, the winner uh, is actually a 1970s comedy uh, called Bugsy Malone, which is a gangster musical starring Scott Baio and Jodie Foster, in which all of the characters who would normally played by adults are played by kids, and whenever they shoot each other, instead of using guns, they throw pies. What a great idea. It is a musical featuring music by the great Paul Williams, who, of mm-hmm. course, did some of the best Muppet music numbers. He did um, Phantom of the Paradise. He's a musical genius. Yeah. Uh, it is a weird film. I have seen it when I was a little kid, and I remember thinking to myself, this can't possibly be right. There's something like this. Th- did they film this by accident? How did this happen? So I'm very excited to revisit it. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking about that next week. In addition to a bunch of other stuff, uh, Hamilton is finally coming to home video on Disney plus. Uh, they filmed a, one of the original cast productions and apparently they've been hanging on to it for forever. It was supposed to go to theaters next year. And then Disney said, screw it. So they're putting it out for 4th of July weekend. So we'll be reviewing Hamilton. Uh, this mu- coming the weekend. Mu- the movie of the musical Hamilton. And there's a new Hirokatsu Koreeda film. That's right, there is. Called The Truth. Valite. Uh, which uh, will be exciting to watch as well. So uh, and, and other things, no doubt, uh, besides. So that will be reviewed uh, next time on Critically Acclaimed. Thank you so much. Sorry again this episode is late. Scheduling these things happen. We're going to do our best to get back on a proper schedule. But um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, everybody, uh, for following us. Thank you, everybody, who leaves us a review. Especially thank you to all of our patrons who keep the show going. Uh, we've got uh, our, our patron is at uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And we have a ton of exclusive content available there. Um, we've got a bunch of podcasts right here on the free uh, page. We're actually going to be debuting a special mm-hmm. soon. That might be a semi-regular thing if you like it. Uh, and we're very, very excited to debut it. It's one of the weirder ideas we've had. Um, but I, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that we get to put it out. So check it back in in a few days. That should come up uh, late this week, early next week at the latest. Um, and of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>